we are indoctrinated, are we not, to seek this, you know, ethereal kind of accreditation and reward and acknowledgement? And is it not just enough to be? We have to be prepared to change. We have to be prepared to lead in a new era. And I think that is something we have to do and we have to collectively hold our nerve with that as well. And, you know, and, and as Ty has said, we need to collaborate. We need to talk to each other. We need to spend time having these big questions and, and having open debates. There's no right or wrong answers. And I think we have to really move into that um, sphere of building those collaborative networks as school leaders so we can have these open conversations. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hi, Golding and Kat Place. Welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Borida, James. James, Borida. Borida, is that? Borida. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Wonderful. All the way from sunny Wales. So welcome. It's lovely to lovely to see you both and to 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 have you both in the in the podcast on the podcast. Um, it's been a while in the planning this one, hasn't it? We've been talking about it for quite a while. And do you want to just repeat what you said off off, off air, as it were, a moment ago, Kat, about the the reason that you sort of initially suggested um, coming on the podcast? Yeah, no problem. Um, so Ty and I are big fans, um, listen to your podcast a lot and and particularly those nice lengthy ones when um, doing long runs and things like that. And quite often find myself um, whilst running sort of shouting at you via your podcast um, <laughs> that there is a different way. And some of the, the arguments maybe be imposed in the podcast around um, the restraints in education. Um, we are slightly doing things slightly different in Wales. And I would often find myself saying, no, we do it differently. It's not like that everywhere. Um, and, you know, and, and sort of the view that you were putting out on, on many podcasts was a very Anglo-centric view. And I, I just say there's life over the border in Wales and uh, with our mass curriculum reform, we are doing things in a slightly different way. Mm. And so, so absolutely. And I'm very aware that, that the podcast and my, my own thinking is very sort of Anglo-centric. I am English. I live in England. You know, like that's just sort of the world that I'm in. But I'm very aware of it and I'm, and I'm keen to, to burst out of my bubble. And so thank you for, for popping that bubble and for making me uh, to expand my horizons. Really looking forward to this conversation. You're right. I don't think that very many people this side of the border, they, they, people sort of know that something is happening in Wales but nobody really is that that clued up about it in, in the conversations that I've had um and so let's just do a couple of quick introductions from each of you just to sort of say about where you work currently we might do the, the we'll do the, the the autobiographical bit later on but let's just do a quick introduction and then we'll do this whole like like what's happening in Wales 101 essentially um, and you can talk bring bring in this story of what's happening in your own schools and also the wider picture then we'll do the autobiographical stuff and then we'll do the rethinking education bit and we'll put the world to rights. <laughs> Does that sound all right? Perfect. Perfect. Good stuff. So um, let's start with you, Ty. Um, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Certainly. Uh, my name is Ty Golding. I'm currently a head teacher of a primary school, two form entry in the town of Barry in South Wales which uh, some people might have heard of through uh, some TV comedy programmes uh, in, in recent times. Uh, we've, we've got uh, uh, quite a mixed demographic. We, we are running at 35% free school meals uh, and we're a diverse community. 
and we're in a very old uh, environment. Uh, in fact, our building was put up in 1892 and we are suffering the consequences of such on a daily basis. Uh, however, you know, great community and I've only been there full time since September. So it's early days. Right. OK, so so it's not it's not a new school, is it? Is the, the school would how long has the school been around for? It's 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 131 years old, so right. it's it's anything but new. Uh, and uh, the reason I became involved is that the school found itself with a little bit of tension uh, nearly two years ago, and I came in and, and was working there one or two days a week to support and help out. Uh, and it put me in a position where I was executive head across that school and another school, which was brand new and actually built in 2015. Uh, and so, you know, it was a real sort of uh, uh, dichotomy of, of situations, if you like, uh, between the, the way that the sort of environment operated. Uh, and it was last summer that uh, I, I took the leap and sort of moved, if you like, from that executive role between the two and, and thought that the school that I'm in now needed a lot more of me and a lot more commitment and a lot of time. Uh, and deserved it as well. So, and it's exciting. So I've been there since September and enjoying it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And uh, over to Kat. So I'm Kat Place and I'm head teacher of a primary school in Newport in South Wales. And um, a little bit of a different story to Ty, really. Um, I've been at my 20th year in education, um, 16 of which as a, a senior leader, deputy or a head. Um, and then I had this amazing opportunity back in 2017 to open a brand new school on a brand new housing estate in Newport. Um, so every single thing about the school is new. Um, we opened on a growing school basis. So I opened in September 2017 with just over 100 children and 16 staff. And then as the community grew, literally, as in they were building houses, um, the school grew. And then sort of within three years, we were at capacity and we've now got 375 children and just over 50 staff. So a massive journey over the last five years in terms of growing not only a school, but also being a, a focal point for the growing of a new community, which has just been fascinating um, and being able to to shape something completely from scratch so I was the first person appointed there was no legacy there's no leaky building there's no um issues you know it literally is this is a blank canvas off you go build a school paint what you want um so amazing yeah I bet that must have felt like a bit of a dream ticket when you first landed that job like th those opportunities don't come around often do they uh, absolutely and I think you know, for me, I, I was a long time a deputy and I had a, maybe a little bit of criticism about why you were deputy head for so long. And I'm so glad I waited and I waited for that right school to come along because I always knew it would. And then the moment I saw that advert, that school was mine and I, I knew it would be mine. <laughs> and we, very pick up on, we pick up on that, Kat, as well, don't we? You know, about that situation and how, you know, how unique and nuanced the, the, the situations are across schools, across, you know, not just Wales, about the UK, but the world as well. And, you know, even having had the, or the fortunate situation of opening a brand, brand new school myself, it was the product of two former schools. Mm. And so two very embedded cultures and established staff as well. So, you know, I, I think that does occupy quite a bit of our conversation as well. But I think you're right, you know, absolutely, you know, Willy Wonka golden ticket time, that is, isn't it? That's, that that's the dream and she's done very well with it 
Thanks. <laughs> yes, I so I heard. So shall we shall we just briefly mention? So so your school was inspected recently by Estin, the the the, the Welsh Ofsted, if that's not um, if that's not an inaccurate way to describe it, the the Welsh Inspectorate. Ty, for the benefit of listeners, Ty is uh, slack jawed with outrage at that at that epithet. Um, so anyway, you were inspected by Estin. We'll we'll talk a bit about about how Estin is different to Ofsted later on, because that's actually a really interesting. An important part of the conversation. Uh, so talk us through the inspection. Yeah so well originally we were supposed to have been inspected in March 2020 and the day of our inspection we had the dreaded phone call to say it was cancelled due to Covid and then we went into national lockdown a few days later so naturally we were all absolutely devastated because um, we were ready for it and we really wanted to have that validation of, of our journey um, so we had to wait a, a couple of years longer um, and in October um, of last year Estin arrived um, and a very very thorough and dare I say brutal process um, and really sort of forensically looking at our journey but also at that the, the what the learning offer is what do we do for our children and how do we ensure children are making progress in learning and um, I'm very 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 proud to say that um, we had no recommendations and um, I actually couldn't quite believe it and it's still a pinch me moment um, and I think for us as a school you know we don't do what we do because of Estin we don't do what we do because of any external um, verification or because we're told to do it from a national picture but what the inspection did for us was that um, gave us that validation that we are doing the right thing and you know, we have been brave. We have thought outside of the norm in terms of education and how we've built our school and our, particularly our curriculum. And, and I think for us, it was that validation that, yes, we are different, um, but we're still on the right track, which was amazing. And I think you've, you've hit a really good point there as well, haven't you, Kat, is how, how amazing and wonderful that is. Uh, you need to be very careful as a school leader uh, that that should not be a driver. It's it's almost as if for you, uh, and we've chatted about this, it, that, that is an unintended implication and a, and a really good one. But when it becomes the intended outcome, uh, I, th I think that's where we start to see fault lines appearing, not just within schools, but actually within the wider system. And it's where you land in that sort of tail wagging dog scenario then. And the amount of, you know, times I've had conversations and seen head teachers on the inverse situation as you cat saying you know we need to do this because I want to get a good estin outcome you know and I think that's the worry for me now is that we need to be careful that both celebrating what what you, you've done and you've achieved but also be careful that the message is not misconstrued in a way that that should be people's ambition because actually it shouldn't absolutely and I think as well that um sharing that has been crucial and, and saying to people stand true to what you believe and your why for your community and be brave about that don't get sidetracked into doing what the school down the road is doing if it doesn't fit your community in your school and we've had to make those decisions you know as we've grown and as we've developed as a school and I'm really glad that we have um but like I said we don't do it for anybody apart from the children in our school and how many times as well just made me remember you know how many times have you and I sat in in a in a workshop or a conference and, or a meeting and something has come up on the screen that's been from either of our schools or our work and rebadged and and simply just try to sort of be retrofitted into somebody else's system yeah. uh, without too that, many dimension uh, <laughs> uh, well there's too many dimension but you and i keep you know have that conversation it 
it without the why and it's bizarre and it, we need to be real that's where i'm sort of nervous about is that people look at success in another school in another context and it's about replication yeah it, it, it's not about that sort of that journey that you need to go go through that, that's right for your school and your your children mm, absolutely well congratulations anyway on that it's very impressive um and it's a wonderful thing to hear about um and while we're doing these introductions can i just quickly ask about how the two of you know one another so i know that you you worked quite closely together and so so just for the benefit of listeners we're running this um, pilot in Wales at the moment of, of the implementation program that I've been working on for the last few years and Cat and Thai schools are both involved in that and I know that your schools are working together you, you did a tweet last week that they were working together sort of in parallel on, on a similar project and I know that you've um, worked together in the past as well and that uh, you know geographically it's nearby I came to Newport not long ago um, for a friend's birthday and we visited Barry because it was just nearby, and so like you know, I can see, I can see the, the 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 closeness. But how did you come to know one another and and work together in this way? Uh, you'll have to correct me here, Kat, but I think it was uh, Cardiff Museum, uh, and I think we were in the basement. Now it's not as exciting as it sounds, Jake, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but we were both appointed to the what is and sort of has the name of the National Digital Learning Council. So I'd previously been involved in uh, a policy development group with Welsh Government, which has sort of came up with a product, which we now refer to in Wales as HUB, uh, H-W-B, not, not HUB, uh, which actually in, in our language uh, refers to a leg up or a help. And it's a national online platform, all encompassing uh, and almost that sign of cradle to grave sort of education sort of principle behind it. Uh, and, and there was a national group put in there to report to and share back and, and support the minister really with the direction of national digital learning so that was my route into it uh and you know avoiding trying to speak on your behalf Kat, i think you'd had a lot of digital and professional learning experience didn't you and driving training and, and workshops and learning for schools yeah definitely and i think um when the the ndlc as as we call it um they went back out then to advert um to have sort of a, a new group forming following the the initial work that was done to create hub and um i just thought oh what, a, what an opportunity let's go for something i'd never worked on a, a national level i was a deputy head at the time and very interested in digital leadership um and then as ty said we met in in a basement in a cardiff museum um and i think um i think what we realized quite quickly through the ndlc meetings is there was a there was a synergy in our thinking um to a certain extent um i know he's got his for the for the listeners um tie is wagging his finger um and i said to a certain extent because there are a lot of things that we also challenge each other on um and then i think i were you know i was sort of um relationship our friendship grew in terms of um with alongside curriculum for wales and how that developed and we were in a really um interesting position in as much as ty started to work for welsh government to lead curriculum design and in the same year that i opened a brand new school and as we describe it it was almost the perfect storm um so things that were happening at that national policy level i could um you know think about i was also part of national groups within that curriculum for wales development and is able then to try out things in my school and almost report back and say this worked this didn't work um, and try that out as well um and we're also doing um doctorate um at the same time as well so we're uh, we're very busy um and i think we we complement each 
each other is in the differences in the fact that our schools are very different demographically and um, the position within our schools is very different and we do a lot of um, professional learning for other schools and we're able to um, showcase very different views but a very common understanding of curriculum and a common um, thought process where learning is concerned. I, yeah, I, just thinking about that actually is I think perhaps it'd be nice to think that there's a lesson in the fact that how well we can work together uh, and how well we want the same outcome, but actually how our methods and our belief system, uh, if you like that paradigm around that is, is, isn't a match, is it? It's not perfect at all in, in, in any sort of, in any way. Uh, and yeah, I, I, th I think it, it is possibly a coincidence. I don't know that we do seem to keep landing in the same, or we did seem to be landing in the same room as each other. Uh, and I don't know it's whether I can use the terms that it's almost kind of a maturing of our kind of experience of moving between working at a local or regional level to then, you know, having conversations and being involved at the national level. But the perfect storm, as, as, as Kat describes it, for me, was almost like the perfect lab, actually. Uh, and, and she won't <laughs> like being described as, as, as lab rat. But whether Absolutely she not. It, whether she likes it or not, she was the lab rat. Uh, and, and it was for me about having somebody with you know, you know, real reflective ability, real sort of uh, collegiate approach and and that ability to use an intelligent and a sophisticated way to think about how curriculum, what curriculum could be that I could sort of have as a sounding board. Uh, and, and often, you know, I think we can probably share this at the moment. Often it was things that weren't public and, you know, weren't wider knowledge brought in that position. I really needed somebody who would push back or somebody who would prepare to try it. And I have to say a huge thank you. And I think a lot of the curriculum is thanks to Kat's willingness to, to take risks and go down cul-de-sacs and, you know, long and winding roads alike uh, in the name of the greater good, not just in the selfish good for her own school. So, you know, I think and I don't think that many people are aware of that. So, you know, testament to her and her ability to take risks, really. That's amazing. Thank you for that. I was, I'm really glad that I asked that question. So so let's get into what's been happening. You sort of touched upon it a little bit, but some of these things that have been happening at a national level, and then we'll maybe sort of come back and talk about how this is playing out in your individual schools. But so this started, was it the Donaldson report that started this, which was around 2015, 16? It was a few years ago. February 2015. Uh... Right. Graham Donaldson published a recommendation report that he was commissioned to do on on, uh, on the state of Welsh education, if you like, and curriculum, uh, and and it was you know and is is called successful futures. So that that's where all this sort of developed and grew from. However, there's a caveat in that that there had been mild uh, sort of tentative footsteps into reform with renegotiating how we looked at literacy and numeracy and the early signs of what a digital competence framework looked like already so i think nationally we'd already start to take steps away from you know the literacy hour uh, and, and all of those other sort of uh, uh, cumbersome if you like products that were getting imparted across the border to us uh, and i think that that sort of raised uh, a number of questions across the system which is why graham was brought in and so, and is it the case, like, so because there's been reports that have been done, like the famously the Tomlinson report in, in this country, which was not implemented under, under Labour and lots of, there was lots of support for that, but Labour didn't want to go there. But is it essentially the case that, that the Welsh government commissioned this report and then just liked the look of it so much that they, they essentially decided to just implement essentially all of Donaldson's recommendations? Is that fair Absolutely. Uh, 68 recommendations. Uh, and 
I think both both a clever move uh, uh, and uh, a shrewd move as well in the fact that you know you've you've got someone there who has engaged with the inspectorate with the teaching with the leadership profession uh come up with these these recommendations uh and and, and the government at the time the minister at the time accepted every single one of them unequivocally uh but equally so uh, and the shrewd move in that was the invite for graham to come and actually take a lead in uh realizing uh, all 68 of those recommendations cat what are you, what are your recollections of yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, when when that sort of happened as well, I think one of the other major changes that happened in education was alongside Successful Futures being published was also then the Welsh Government really considering how they were going to implement that change, what would be the process for that change. And they set about um, having what they called pioneers, um, and they were um, taken from a selection of schools across Wales, individuals to actually co-construct the curriculum. And again, I think a very brave move if this wasn't about policy directors you know sitting in Cardiff in Cate's Park um you know making the decisions it was actually about those closest to the profession making the decisions about what the curriculum was going to look like I think there's a misconception um across schools in those early days where it was almost seen as an s and then the pioneers had it all the pioneers were given the answers as to what to do but actually that wasn't strictly true because what the pioneers did was actually um get into a, a very focused professional learning for themselves as to what is curriculum and what are these aspects of curriculum and how do you build curriculum to ensure that breadth and depth across a three to 16 continuum of learning? What I found when I first started as well is that, you know, whilst that was the sort of early misconception, by the time I was involved at 2017, I think the reality was that we were heading, unfortunately, towards a have and a have not system. And we were, we were you know, if you like, sort of uh, hothousing these kind of you know, pioneers, and they were exposed to some real high level thinking and engagement. And, you know, the most important commodity to any professional, they were given time away from the classroom to sit and engage and challenge, you know, each other and be challenged. Uh, and so, so when I come in, there was kind of a, a disparate system between that, uh, between the professional learning offer nationally and, and the understanding of how we were going to support this curriculum uh, and the understanding, as Kat has just pointed out, what about the rest of the population? You know, 33,000 registered teachers, 27,000 registered or in schools practicing. Uh, and then we had several hundred working on the curriculum. You know, th there's, there's got some very serious consequences or potential consequences that needed to be thought about and managed. I think one of the ways that that was managed has been the timing as well in terms of Welsh Government. So um, for for listeners to know that actually the statutory rollout of the curriculum has only just happened now this academic year. So from September 2022 for um, primary schools and optional for year seven, um, this is the first year of it becoming a statutory um, requirement for schools to follow. Um, but leading up to 2022 has been um, us trialing, us having a go, um, providing opportunities to make mistakes um, before it becomes that statutory framework. So again, and I think that has been something that has really helped us. Yeah, it's like smart implementation, right? To like to have a little sand pit first of all, and to to um to have some sharing of good practice and so on. So so obviously we're not going to get into all sixty eight of the recommendations, but like, can you give us some broad strokes? Like, what's the what are the key sort of ideas? How is this different to what has gone before? How is this different to what's happening elsewhere in the world? I'll let Ty go first. He's the expert on this. 
I, th I think, you know, first and foremost, and it, it might not sound uh, at a superficial level very different, but the, the curriculum is, is purpose-driven and purposes-driven. And I would probably find it hard to look at any curriculum document globally uh, and not have the front page or, you know, that sort of, sort of precursory reflection on, on purpose behind curriculum and education. Uh, but, but what this or this set of recommendations did is it put four particular purposes at the heart of all learning. Uh, and these four purposes, uh, if you like, were an ambition for, for all 16-year-olds and beyond uh, in, in Wales. Uh, alongside that, it was about ensuring that we moved away from uh, a key stage mentality uh, and making sure that we weren't looking at cliff edges in the education system, whether that be into education uh, at the age of, of three to five, whether that between, you know, what you, you call and refer to as your foundation stage or your key stage two, uh, and, and that, you know, the, the notorious cliff edge between year six and year seven and key stage two and key stage three, and then up towards the, the qualifications landscape too. So, so one of, you know, and part of the driver really was very much then around uh, ensuring that there was a continuity of learning. So, so the curriculum now is a three to 16 continuum. It was about bringing uh, assessment in-house and what I mean by that is that not looking at assessment as a bolt-on feature, not looking at it as, as an external measuring tool uh, and making sure that, you know, you're, you're planning, you're, you're learning, you're teaching, your pedagogy, if you like, that the underpinning of your practice was actually built on as much as it was on assessment uh, as it was on planning and the curriculum content as well and the ideals. Uh, it was about uh, and, and really poking the finger and prodding the finger at accountability and trying to move away, and as I've talked about earlier, really, that tail wagging dog mentality. You know, we were, and we have been for a number of years in Wales, as I know you are in England, we are hugely data rich. You know, whether that's quantitative, qualitative, uh, we we had and used to receive packs, uh, termly, yearly in Wales, which, you know, were sometimes in excess of 40, 50 pages long, with every possible combination of data of, of girls, boys, vulnerable groups, literacy, numeracy, science, Welsh, uh, PSE, you know, you name it, this pack sliced it and you name it, we were judged on it uh, and schools were held to account. And what happened is, and I think it was really hard to get away from in the end, is that the system was gamed so much that we'd reached our ceiling. And there was literally nowhere else to game the system because we were all within one or two percent in Wales of being perfect schools. Imagine that. So, you know, uh, on, on, on a graph, that is. And then you tie that alongside, you know, your international TIMS and your PISA performances. Uh, and there's a slight <laughs> anomaly, to say the least. And we weren't performing on those international measures. Uh, and, and so the system needed a reboot. And I think that's part of what those recommendations were. And it was about as well moving education from the hands of policymakers uh, and politicians and you know we, we probably need to explore that ambition a little bit further uh, and putting it in the hands of of professionals you know subsidiarity uh, and and the thinking that you know those closest to the problems are definitely best equipped to be able to come up with the solutions you know and finally i think for me and, and cat will pick up uh for me it was about moving learning away from purely being silos uh, and and learning domains or disciplines or subject-based learning and giving us in, in Wales not necessarily a, a mandate to do it 
but given us the license to consider how we can better move away from learning in, in very discrete channels and having a look at the interplay, the interrelationships, the interdependencies, you know, the reliances of learning across a curriculum in order to develop a holistic child. You know, so if you partner that academic ambition uh, with that interdependency and interrelationship with the purpose ambition, you know, what you come up with for us really is, you know, a future citizen of Wales and, and a future active, proactive, informed citizen of the world. Where do I sign up? <laughs> you, you, you simply just need to apply for a Welsh passport, James, and you'll be fine. <laughs> I'm actually quite tempted to do that. I've been reading a lot about druidry recently. I'm really interested in like Welsh history. It's like this is like I'm I'm sign me up. I love Wales. Um, and so so, would you would you add anything to that? That was a very comprehensive answer, Ty. Thank you. Is there anything that you would add to that, Kat? Um, I don't think so. I, well, apart from um, you know, as Ty said right at the beginning, um, that it is that purpose-driven curriculum, and I think um, for us as um, school leaders, it's about making sure that we keep that in our heads that it is purpose-driven. Um, you know, and looking at that structure, we're, we're given a national structure to look at to help us shape our curriculum. But very much as school leaders, it's our role now to curriculum design, um, and I think that brings both its pluses and massive of challenges um you know because in the end day we were all teachers um you know who have been trained in literacy and numeracy hours and in subject disciplines so to actually um learn about curriculum design and actually bring those that national level framework into school level design and planning has been a real challenge um but also a very exciting one and that's where isn't it Kat, I suppose going back to your earlier point where we get the internal and external criticism that we've gone soft because people think that that ability to create and develop a more contextualized curriculum to meet the needs of your learners, while still within the tolerances of a, if you like, a national framework, uh, that's too loosey-goosey, if they went for a better phrase. And, and the, we get the word here, James, autonomy bandied around, you know, like it's going out of fashion. Uh, and, and Kat and I do a very pointed uh, talk uh, and, and discussion about perhaps we need to really reframe that dialogue and that rhetoric as agency. Uh, and, you know, any any form of, of reading around a lot of sort of Mark Priestley's work and, and the work of Gerd Biesta, uh, and you really do get to underpin what, what agency and professional informed agency looks like, you know, and, and not it's not something that you can own. So can can we pick up like I want to just explore this 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 idea that you just talked about about this the difference between autonomy and agency and also I really want to get my head around this this the, the other word that you use subsidiarity which is attached to these ideas um so autonomy it, in my layperson's understanding means like self rule doesn't it like autonomous like self directing like autonomous vehicles like self driving cars uh so and and then agent ag being agentic is something that's slightly different. Can you explain what you mean about the difference between those two? I don't know who wants to pick that up. Kat, would you like to start or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, exactly as you said, James, um, in terms of autonomous, I think it is very much about being that self-directed. And, and I think that's a bit of a myth when it comes to curriculum for Wales and a bit of a misconception that is out there within Wales itself as well, um, that the new curriculum is just, you know, there's no structure or it just lets you do what you like. It really doesn't. And it's not about self-directed learning. Um, quite often curriculum for Wales is thought to have been a um, child-led curriculum. 
And again, that is a massive misconception because um, there is a structure. There is something that we have to look at to help guide our thinking. But then this is where massively that agency comes in. And I think Priestley um, has had a lot of work. Mark Priestley has had a lot of work with Welsh Government, um, particularly around professional learning. And he describes agency as it's not that something people can have as a capacity or a competence, but it's something that people do. And I think for us, agency is absolutely the right word and we've had to build um, particularly a lot of that trust and agency within our own schools within the profession as a whole to be able to take that um, high level thinking and enact it in our school and um, to enable our children to have those you know, structures for learning and you know i think one of your previous guests actually and it, it uh, sort of evades me who it was talked about this actually james in the fact that the agency isn't it is that energy that dynamic and that output and that action that happens uh between a relationship so it's it's what happens between people uh it's not something that is, is owned by one and, and you're right isn't it that autonomous is, is is you know that that sort of etymology that greek etymology of its own laws and i think perhaps in it used in its extreme argument it, it has become a straw man argument for us in wales uh from certain sectors uh, and I think perhaps that's why I prefer the rhetoric around agency uh, and, and making sure that the, the options, as Kat said, and the informed decisions are happening, the professional choices are happening. But with regards, not just for the sake of, you know, it, it has to have a purpose, it has to have an outcome and it has to have an end goal as well. So so I think agency for us stands a little bit stronger uh, in, in the argument front and the debate front, uh, albeit there is a degree of autonomy. Uh, however, I think the misconception also that comes with with curriculum here in Wales at the moment is the fact that autonomy sits with the practitioner. Uh, and I'd say that's where the agency sits, but perhaps the autonomy sits more with the organisations. And the way that, that Kat and I approach that is that we take curriculum as a school, as an organisation. We look at how we develop as a learning organisation, how we develop leadership and professional learning, but actually how we take ownership of uh, those spaces that we can fill within our national framework as, as a whole organization, both uh, horizontally uh, in our organizations uh, and as peers and colleagues, but also vertically, progressively through our organizations, uh, and particularly in CATS, in my case, between those three and 11 year olds uh, and how they move forward. But equally so, uh, and dare I say it, not, not really losing hope or, or handing over at 11. It's making sure that that progressive, that vertical perspective actually continues. Uh, and that's no easy feat. You know, the yeah. sectors are different. We have very different roles. And I think as well, the other thing when it when it comes to agency, just building on what Ty was saying, there's there's also that thought then about the power in the system and where does the power sit? So within our education system, um, you know, for years, it's been a very much a top down power. We have been told what to do. We've had that prescriptive curriculum. We've been um, assessed on that curriculum. We've had um, Estin assessing us as a school on those top-down um, thought processes, those top-down um, rules, if you like, for education. Whereas with, what comes with agency is a reduction of that. And it's about what do you do? And actually it sounds, you know, what Ty spoke then was it sounds absolutely ideal. And wouldn't you want to work in an education system that's like that? But actually, it's very hard because what you're having to do is also change those practices that are so ingrained and inbuilt in people in both those that are working in education, but also families and parents and their thought processes about what education means. And um, so when you particularly talking around assessment and how do they know where children are and that type of thing. And um, so, you know, you can use that word agency as just one little buzzword, but there's a massive connotations when it comes to um, curriculum reform. 
Yeah, sure. You're right. And and the, that transition, you know, it's a very different thing, isn't it, to, to be starting a new school as you have, to be working in an existing school where, that, like you say, those habits and ways of working and like professional identities are very sort of ingrained and very hard to hard to move the dial on in, in a sustainable way. Um, so so this, uh, this, this word subsidiarity, can we just get into that for a moment? Like, what does it mean? What does that word mean? First of all, like in theory, like what does that word mean? Like what's the definition of it? And also, what does it look like in practice? What is the what is there more of under this policy of subsidiarity? What is there less of? So, first of all, just like what does it mean? Well, I think quite in its simplest form, it's the principle, isn't it, that perhaps a central authority uh, should have a subsidiary function uh, and perform only the tasks that are absolutely necessary and can't be performed at a local level. So, if we look at that in terms of government. Or here in Wales, we look at that in terms of regional consortia or local authority, you know, within education and particularly curricula uh, and curriculum policy, uh, that those organisations, you know, should not serve or contribute to any function that can actually be picked up at a local level, including decision making, including pedagogy, including assessment, including that self-evaluation, that school improvement cycle. Uh, and the idea being uh, that that framework and, and those sort of, you know, those uh, parameters are set. But we have, you know, one of the key aspects of any, you know, sort of like you said, agentic performance or efficacy uh, is trust, isn't it? And, and that and that system is, is trusted and developed and able, able to perform within that. So I think if you if you consider autonomy and agency within that, those are two distinct but, you know, rather close bedfellows within that principle or that concept of subsidiarity. Yeah, I see. So sort of like devolving decision making down to the local level as far as possible. And, and so what does that look like in practice? Could you give me some sort of concrete examples of what subsidiarity looks like in, in reality in schools and in other organisations? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's about um, those closest to the practice to make those decisions as well. I think that's a key part of subsidiarity. Um, again, I'll go back to um, a phrase I'm using, I've used quite a bit already in this podcast around that national level framework, that we have a national framework that's available for us as school leaders, but we can take that framework and interpret it to create our curriculum design within our schools. Um, on a very sort of um, local level for me within my school, um, we have a curriculum design that provides our teachers with an overview of how to build themes and how to build learning, but actually they make the decisions of what happens in that classroom. I'm not giving them a scheme of work. I'm not saying, okay, spring term two, we're back now after half term, year one, you do this, year two, you do this, year six, you're doing this. It's up to staff to make those decisions. I don't, I ask them why they're doing it. And as long as they can tell me why, great, carry on. Um, and it's about them to go through those processes of learning and to understand, and it goes back exactly to what Ty just said, it's all around trust. And it's about building in that trust, but quite crucially, it's also about building in time. And it's about making sure that staff, first of all, have that time to actually um, practice subsidiarity in its truest form of being able to have those conversations, both with their children and with their colleagues to say, you know, this is where I'm taking their learning, this is why I'm doing this, but also time and um, professional learning wise so that we can sit together as a whole school 
and that we can see where um, those themes of learning actually go back up to our curriculum design and where do they fit. So this is not a free for all. This is not just a, a teacher waking up on a snowy morning saying, oh, let's look at the snow today. And then that's the theme for the next six weeks. Um, it is, you know, it is structured, um, but teachers really do have that agency to do what they feel is right for their children and make those pedagogical decisions to support that. It, it works on a number of axes, doesn't it? You know, and, and a number of intersections, actually. And I think while you were talking there, that the, the big one for me is, you know, moving away from that spoonful of medicine, you know, and that that wanting to be fed and our system. You know, we in Wales, we for a long time, myself included, we've come through a system where we've been spoon fed. Uh, you know, autonomy in the system before looked like a national curriculum that was made behind closed doors, delivered to us in boxes, and the autonomy was, can you get on with delivering what's in that document? That was genuinely system autonomy. Sounds and then, very familiar. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe it has echoes. Uh, but, you know, the axis of, you know, firstly, how can, if we don't have the all the answers, and, I, and, and, you know, we as leaders should never claim to have all the answers, and we should never portray ourselves as having all the answers within our organisations because we don't. If we can face that, you know, as a, as a reflective, proactive leader, surely the system as it goes up through its tiers can actually reflect that they can't provide all the answers either. And so, so for me, it's about that collaborative approach, uh, not just, you know, on, on, on an axis alongside colleagues, but it's about myself having freedoms as a head to work with my team and design a set of parameters. It's about my subset of family teams in school designing their parameters and working within that. It's about those teachers when they close the door, and they get on with their classroom. And as Kat has said, and I've alluded to, running all the way through that, you know, is support, challenge, and trust. So, so my mind is spinning here. Like this, there is this is just sounds sort of almost too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening there? Like it's just like this is and 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 just briefly, just to, you you mentioned the four purposes earlier, and for the benefit of listeners, I've got them here. So I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to recite them. Or, I'm, I'm, don't, don't doubt that you could. <laughs> So we've got the first one is around ambitious, capable learners uh, ready to learn throughout their lives. So that seems to me to be like about developing, like growing great learners, essentially, or learner effectiveness is what it's often described as uh, in Wales. Um, the second one is enterprising, creative contributors ready to play a full part in life and work. Uh, and that, that word enterprising, is that being interpreted in the sense of like sort of entrepreneurship and business? Or is that just more like sort of on the creativity side? How, what, what, what is that one? How's that being interpreted? I, you know, to be honest, I think both and uh, also with regards to a sense of resilience, independence uh, and and sort of personal creativity, not just you know, being creative in the larger sense of the word as well. Uh, and, and demonstrating, if you like, that resilience in your own learning and that ability to draw upon something beyond your immediacy. Yeah, sure. OK, thank you. Um, the third one is ethical, informed citizens of Wales and the world. And that's, that sounds like this sort of simultaneously about citizenship and, you know, learning about the way that the world works, but also the ethical thing. It sounds like there's a, a dollop of like character education in there about, you know, how to be a good person, how to live a, a, a good life, like learn about virtues and, and what have you. Um, and the fourth one is healthy, confident individuals ready to lead fulfilling lives as valued members of society. And, and all of them, 
link that the, 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 the society the world life and work throughout their lives the language in each of those is about what's happening beyond the school gates and mm -hmm. so it's this very holistic vision of education that's about trying to create a better world it's not just about like just helping the kids to sort of to get better results in the short term it's, it's this quite an expansive vision for for how to create a a, 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 a better world a better society and you know, you know let, let's let's bring it back to brass tacks here if you were to yourself be able to say or meet or work or coexist with another human an adult who could demonstrate all four of those purposes to you know to the nth degree you'd be doing really well you know they're very hard to argue with uh, and surely they are in in my mind a, a societal ambition not just ambitions for individuals as well you know they're an amalgam uh, but you know and you talk about those statements but for me and and in, increasingly for others as well what i think we need to be aware that what sits below those we, we've got 33 characteristics that sort of underpin them they aren't trite throwaway statements james uh, and the, the real passion for me is the fact that how we can use those characteristics and those behaviours and values, as you've quite rightly said, uh, and the, that moral purpose behind it as well, to, to sit across from the academic and, and the progress along that. And, it, you know, we aren't talking a million miles away, are we, from, from the split screen work of Guy, you know, as, as you're familiar with, and, and really trying to push that progress in learning and that continuum alongside what we want for them as human beings, you know, and, and because of that, uh, a, it can be and has become slightly superficial and trivialized to some extent, but equally so, it is possibly the most trans transformational opportunity we've had as an education system ever. Mm, absolutely. I uh, need to get Graham Donaldson just sounds like an enlightened character. <laughs> I need to get him on the podcast. He's not somebody that I've particularly heard of like much like be before, well, apart from this report. Um, but it's yeah, it's absolutely tremendous. And so let's let's get into some more more of the sort of the concrete examples of of how this is playing out in terms of policies and practices. And one thing that I'm interested to hear more about is Estin that we heard from earlier, um, the Welsh Inspectorate, and that would that has been reformed. I understand it in recent years alongside the these these reforms around the curriculum for Wales. Please, could you um, just explain a bit about what 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 it used to be like and what it's like now? Yeah, no problem. Um, I think Estin, in terms of it um, as an inspectorate, used to be very much um, would come into schools. We'd have um, three weeks notice and they would come in almost with their clipboards and have a little look around and then make judgments. And, and that was their role. They were coming in to make judgments. Yes, they, they look at safeguarding and health and safety curriculum, teaching and learning, ALN, you know, all of the all the aspects of education. But very much at the end of that um, visit, they would give you a judgment on the current performance then they would give you a judgment on your prospects for the future and then what would come with that would be a series of recommendations um, and it was very much you know we would um, provide a self-evaluation report up front to Aston before they came in so they would have a picture of school they would know what you were working on as a school 
you would make sure that they could see everything that happens in a school when they came in for their visits because you wanted to showcase what was going on and it was high it was high stakes you know we're talking about high stakes accountability here for our um for our schools and particularly for our school leaders and i think we we were getting to the point in wales where um we were compared on those judgments and i'm talking about the judgments around um excellent good adequate or unsatisfactory and you watch out if you were unsatisfactory and that word adequate just sounds a bit meh um so you were aiming for good and excellent and, and there were high stakes around who was getting those and, and you know why you were having these uh, labels attached to you as a school um i don't think schools particularly in wales went down the whole route of putting banners up outside schools to say they were uh, excellent and good but i think some probably did because it was such high stakes and it was oh ty did he's he's, uh, he's saying he did um he had excellent by the way in a previous school um so uh not an he, in, in, inadequate banner outside yeah he didn't have an inadequate banner <laughs> he had an excellent banner i should i should absolutely cat, um, category categorically say it was an excellent banner um if you put me off my uh, train of thought there um but yeah so it was high stakes um and i think with the with the um education reform in wales Eston have been part of that that has been absolutely crucial so when i talked earlier about the pioneer process and particularly that process you know ty was um leading that he was in charge of curriculum design from a welsh government perspective he was working alongside Eston. they were there they were part of those groups they were learning alongside practitioners from across wales and they were they were part they were you know, the same as everybody else. And I think that from the beginning, that made a huge, huge point to the education profession. We are learning alongside you. We are not us versus them. They then looked at their um, structure as a whole in terms of how they inspect, and they made the brave decision themselves to, to do away with judgments. So they now provide a narrative report on school um, I can speak, you know, I was inspected back in October last year. I, as a head teacher, I was what they call the nominee. I was part of the inspection team. I was included um, in every conversation that happened. Um, they do much more in terms of learning walks across the school rather than going in with a clipboard and observing a lesson for a whole hour, then move to the next lesson. They still had lengthy observations, um, but they're not putting judgments on teachers um, either. And I think that changed the whole outlook of inspection. So when I got the call, we now have a 10 day notice period. Um, when I got the call, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, quick, I've got to tidy up the self-valuation report. We don't have self-valuation reports anymore that we have to give them. Um, we have to provide you know, a couple of documents in advance of them arriving at the school and they arrive at the school and they want to know your story. So the first thing I sat down, I had six inspectors and they I had 15 minutes, which for those who know me, if I would know that's very difficult for me to only talk about my school for 15 minutes. But that's what I had. I had 15 minutes to say, right, what is your story? Tell us your story. And I did. And then it was up to the inspection team to actually go through. Obviously, they have their regulations. They have the things they have to look at. And then they went through um, and completed that. But at the end of every day, I was part of their team discussions. I was able to say things like, oh, no, we do do that. Or it looks like this. Or you, you picked up this. Actually, this is what it means for us in our school. And that was absolutely crucial and being part of that process. Um, and then at the end, it's, it's quite funny. You know, you don't get a shiny badge anymore. You don't get to put the banner up anymore outside your school. And, and, and what you get you get a narrative and and i know from you know, talking to colleagues some heads are like oh well, okay it's good but actually secretly i want to still be told i'm excellent or i'm good um and for others you know myself included and i am an achievement junkie what it did do was take away that pressure and during that inspection i just went with it because i i, I knew that it was going well i was getting those vibes 
but actually ultimately they weren't going to stick a label on me or a badge on me so it took away a lot of that um heightened anxiety around um judgments which was really good yeah and from your teachers i imagine Oh, huge. Yeah. I think one thing that is interesting, though, that um, didn't suit our school, if I'm completely honest, was around that that level of lesson observation and, and having those external people coming into our school. We've got a very open culture within our school. We have a um, collaborative approach to observation. Um, and so people coming in, it was still very much high stakes for my teachers, you know, and because they care and they're passionate. Um, but I think very much as the as the week went on and they could see that these inspectors were normal human people that smiled and wanted to know what was happening in our school they relaxed massively and the children as well you know they were they wanted to know they wanted to learn and find out about our school i, I think the, the big thing just listening there Kat, isn't it and for me having recently been inspected too is is the level of professional dialogue that i was able to engage with which didn't exist in the previous system and probably doesn't exist in other systems. But, you know, coming back to James, James's original sort of point as well is, you know, why is this coming about in this change? It's, you know, with so much policy and intent and purpose change in our system, we needed to have an inspectorate that was in step or more in step with, with measuring those policies, you know, and I don't know how many people are aware of this and it's, you know, it's quite a, a dull aside perhaps, but, you know, there is a standing board of international inspectorates uh, and, you know, part of that uh, is the fact that inspections, you know, internationally uh, should reflect the nature and the purpose of, of education policy. So in Wales, we, we needed to address that. And, and part of that uh, was a review. Uh, and, and here's his name again. So you definitely need him on. That review was led by one Professor Graham Donaldson. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and and it, it's an interesting read, actually. And for anybody who wants to look at it, you, know, you simply have to Google a learning inspectorate. You know, and, and it, it unpicks uh, and, and references, you know, the, the Bratislava memorandum that, that says around the purpose and how inspections should be held in that professional and that sort of statutory way across countries. And then it walks through what he found when he looked at our inspectorate uh, and, and really held a mirror up to it. You know, so there's some really sort of uh, pointed findings in there. And then it's got clear guidelines and recommendations for, for how the inspectorate should take a phased approach to implementing that. So. Uh, and I think the concept of having a learning inspectorate uh, in itself could probably benefit yourselves and your colleagues in England too. Well, wouldn't it just? I mean, it's it, it, there's an inquiry under that's about to um, start. I think um, Lord Jim Knight is overseeing it uh, into Ofsted, and you know, people have been looking at this for a long time. There's been, a, you know, I think Labour have got on their on their. Um, you know, they're, they're one of the few things that they've said that they'll do if they get into power is that they'll reform Ofsted, not get rid of it, but to reform it and to make it more supportive and so on. This, I mean, the, the, that phrase that you just used, Ty, professional dialogue was, you know, just ringing out from what Kat said. And it just sounds like it's so much more respectful. <laughs> like there's just this sense of there's this like there's this horrible fear that, that has become associated with with Ofsted. Where the, the getting the call is like, and we wouldn't get 10 days or three weeks notice. We would get like one day's notice or two days notice. Mm -hmm. And there's just this fearful shock of like adrenaline that goes through you. This sense that, that you're, that, that, that they're coming to find you out for, for being it's like this deficit model. It's just like, how can we catch you being rubbish? And it's just, it's very disrespectful <laughs> to, to a profession of really, really hardworking, tired, you know, compassionate, caring people 
who are, who are doing their best and and it's and 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 that just it comes really comes through and also like it sounds like it's quite strength based you know it allows you to lead with your front foot and say here's what we're doing really well and here are some areas that we think we could we could work on absolutely um, and i think james you know on that note it enabled me to be very honest as well and just be like this is my school this is what's happening right now in my school these are the children these have been the um you know the challenges post pandemic this this is the community that i'm i'm in i can't change these things but this is what we're doing to try to support and and they were very open and what they weren't doing was saying well this is what x school down the road looks like or this is what the previous school i inspected they didn't have that they were very open and very respectful in your school your journey and there's a number of, of, of things to consider alongside that isn't it that let's not uh, be naive in trying to sell that it, it's the perfect picture either you know uh coining one of graham's phrases i think personally so far so good you yeah. know and you can't argue with that uh but but as you said there cat as well what, what i also felt is that you you didn't have that tooth and nail fight you know, you were going to die in a ditch over a grade, you know, and I didn't have that. And actually, as a professional, I was prepared to let some things go that perhaps I didn't 100 percent agree with. But, you know, was it worth the extra 300 heartbeats a minute? No, it wasn't, you know, because we run a good school. We look after our children and they get a really bloody good education from it. So so that dialogue was helpful. I, you know, I had some really good advice off my inspectors. You know, wow, that was amazing. I made three pages of notes of things I should look at as a head. Yeah, I actually took it away as a little bit of professional learning. Imagine that. You know? <laughs> wow. Uh, so, so, but I think the challenge you've got is with any organizational change, and you know, is the fact that the intent and the drive from from the re the review uh, and the policy direction and the leadership, it will take time to filter down through the system because it is ultimately relying, whether it likes it or not, on a cascade model. So, and and what you've got, and inevitably in any system where you know, small pods of a large group go out and they see and work in different contexts, you're going to have mass variability and you're going to depend upon who turns up on that Monday morning, you know, and, and I don't think we're ever going to get away from that. But I think if we stick to our principles and the intent and we grow that agency and trust coming back to what we were talking about earlier, and we make sure that we are afforded the ability to make those sensible decisions at our level, well, it can surely only improve and, go and carry on going in the right way. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And just, just quickly, just as I was talking about the deficit model there, you mentioned an acronym a little while ago, Kat, ALN, which for the benefit of people on this side of the border and elsewhere is additional learning needs. Yeah. And, and in this country, we call it SEND, we call it special educational needs and disabilities. And it's just such a, a deficit like set of language that isn't it to associate, you know, like people with particular learning needs with disabilities in the same thing as though it's just like you're sort of disabled, you're sort of you're like you're sub like par or whatever it might be so subnormal for like that horrible word that was used not 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 so long ago. Additional learning needs just seems like such a, a much more inclusive and lovely and accurate way to describe that. I wonder, is, is, that, is that a recent shift as well, this move to ALN? Is that a part of this whole thing? 
Yeah, so as well as having a curriculum reform and an accountability reform and ESTIM reforming and professional learning reforming and all the other reforms, we've also had an ALN, an additional learning needs reform in Wales. So Welsh Government haven't done anything, you know, by half, really. Um, the ALN Act um, has come into force now and very much that's about putting the individual at the centre of all the practices. Um, and it's about um, schools obviously making sure we have an additional learning needs coordinator predominantly who should be a leader within our schools um, who leads this work and um, we have very much look at a person-centered approach so making sure our children who demonstrate additional learning needs that they're at the center and then we look at the provision that we can provide so is it that universal provision that should be happening in every classroom anyway regardless of funding or support extra adults just what are we going to do within our our natural teaching and pedagogical decisions to support all children because they're all different then then we have a um, specialised support where we're really looking at what do these children need to be able to thrive? What do they actually need that is more specific for those children? And that's where we're able to pull on agencies. And I think um, we are, as a, as a school, personally speaking, but also nationally speaking, I think ALN reform has been huge for us but is a long, long way to go, um, particularly in terms of funding. You know, we are massively underfunded in being able to provide support for our children. Um, I'm very fortunate within my school, I've got a learning resource base as well, um, which is part of my school. So I have um, 10 children with significant additional learning needs and four members of staff in that classroom to support them. Um, they are the greatest addition to my school. And you talk about inclusivity, um, they are very much part and parcel of our school. And, it, and like I said, it's an absolute privilege to be able to care and support children um, in a mainstream setting um, that have those needs because we were able to give them the right provision because they come first as individuals. And I think that's been the strength of the new ALN Act. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, Kat. And I think, you know, it's about the ability, again, we come back to it, isn't it? The trust and agency that we have to be able to deliver uh, and, you know, engage in personalised, individualised, you know, curricula, meeting, you know, those learners where they are. You know, and, and go into them, uh, and I think that's key. And 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 you're right. It's about you know the, the system resourcing that now. Uh, and as you've said, you know, through your experiences there, and myself, I've got two areas in my school currently being converted, uh, and one of them will be will be a support in resource base for for children with ASD. Another with children with high degrees of trauma, uh, making sure that they are part and parcel of our school community. Uh, you know, and our understanding. Uh, and, you know, our, our ethical informed decisions, James. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So so, so let's let's round off this part of the conversation soon. There's there's, there's so much more I would like to talk to you about, but also there's, there's other things. I want to hear more about you, and we need to think about rethinking education more widely. Um, one of these is about evaluation. Um, this, this, like, those four purposes, as we heard earlier, are very expansive. This is not only about exam grades, although exam grades is, is one way of measuring this stuff. But, you know, to, to create ethical, informed citizens of Wales and the world, you know, to um, to be having lifelong learners who are enterprising and able to solve problems and all of that stuff. That's all um, quite difficult to measure. And, and so I'm sort of just wondering about... <laughs> <laughs> for the benefit of listeners ty is punching the air so 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 and yeah that's right so so uh, let's just start with that why were you punching the air there ty well <laughs> it should be difficult to measure you know <laughs> because i'm going to put it back to you and say 
Why do you want to measure it? You know, but me measures and accountability has gone from the traditional concept of, of measuring a system to measuring an individual. And that's where it's gone completely wrong. You know, it's it's fallen foul of its own self-importance, if you like. And I think that's part of our reform here. You know, we've got a growing accountability and improvement uh, system here and an emerging one. I'm not saying that actually I think that particularly is going down the right road. But, you know, Estin is, is very much a positive part of that. But, you know, we need to be very careful, you know, the, the, the cliches abound here in classrooms and head teacher meetings up and down the land, you know, you know, continually weighing that pig does not improve or fatten that pig, does it? You know, it, it's really important that we understand that, you know, the purpose behind measuring, what is it? Is it to make the system feel better about what it does? Is it to make the head teachers feel better about their school? Or is it to actually support and improve and move that learner forward? Now, for purposes, if you like, and you, you could guarantee me a child who'd been uh, embraced and engaged and stimulated across those four purposes over 10 A stars, I take that every time, James. Okay. And the reason why it's hard to measure is because we're human and we're people and it's important and it's dynamic and it's fluid, isn't it? It's relational. Uh, and those are all the key points. This is what we do. I didn't get into teaching uh, to, to measure people, you know, and <laughs> as much of a shock as that might be to colleagues, uh, you know, I got into teaching because I like people. I like children. I like working with them. And I like seeing people flourish and grow and actually have a little bit of a light turned on as well and a passion. You know, what, what is there? I, you know, even by the fact that you brought up the word measure is stimulated and set my goosebumps and hairs sticking up. And you can tell I'm getting animated because it, it is not about measure. Measure should be telling the system, you know, at a high level that we're going in the right direction and there's improvement and we're doing the right or the wrong things. What measure has been taken to is, and as you've said, it's been a punitive tool, you know, and it's been used in the wrong way. Now, why would you want to measure and, and how would you anyway, in a really sort of any kind of way, uh, a meaningful way, why would you want to measure how much more ethical you're becoming? For what purpose? Surely it's about the process of becoming more ethical. It's about the learning. It's the engagement. It's a, it's that dialogic kind of approach. It's that ability to communicate, communicate, to work as an individual, as part of a wider society, to see consequences, cause and effect. You know, I, I can't even begin to start on pushing back there. Uh, and, and part of it is because it triggers me, uh, admittedly. Uh, part of it is because actually Kat and I have got colleagues who are trying to distill it and measure it down. Now, well, that's you know, what I was going to get in. If I can get a word in, Edgeway. So, sorry, but what, 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 what I would always go back to is if you give me a measure about characteristics, about attributes, about behaviors, about qualities, you know, we would all need to sit and have a long conversation about the validity of what that data was. And for what purpose would you collect that data? Would you want the UK saying we are 42% more ethically informed as a nation? when we all know and are watching the news and worrying about Braverman and knowing that that isn't true, you know? what For what purpose would that come to light? Okay, I'm going to jump in now while he takes a little breath. Um, I think, you know, I, I agree with everything that Ty has said there, um, but also I think it's about the purpose of the four purposes and the, the, the intent of the four purposes was never from an assessment perspective. The problem in the system in Wales is some people do try to do that. 
there is a definite um, old, what you call a lot, old brain thinking. So, you know, using those mechanisms and those measures that we've had before within our system in Wales and just saying, well, yeah, they're ethically informed, tick, or they've reached progression step one, tick. That is not the intent of curriculum for Wales. And so there is still massive work to go within our system, although, yes, we've got these great four purposes and we've got a great um, national framework that is supporting understanding. The, what's happening in, in schools across Wales as a whole is still a very mixed picture, I would say, in terms of assessment and progression. Um, there is an assessment strategy that sort of goes alongside um, the National Curriculum for Wales. And um, we've been fortunate enough to be part of developing and designing that. We sit on the National um, Assessment Group. And I think that is about really making sure that each individual child is supported and challenged appropriately. And the purpose of that assessment strategy is that ongoing day-to-day basis. It's not about those checkpoints at the end of year two or the end of year six or the end of year nine or SATs. And, you know, we don't have that. So we don't have those measures that are driving what is happening within schools, but also those four purposes. And the intent is never that they are measured because as Ty said, you can't say, you know, 42% are ethically informed and tick a box. And, and we have deliberately engineered the the text, the product, to be difficult to do that with, James. But in, a, in, a, in effect, that is also the challenge our professionals are having because they're saying, you know, we want, or, and they were given a, a blank sheet uh, and now they want a filled in set of cells and boxes because, you know, that's a lot easier. And so that's the possibly part of the tension in the system. But but Kat's point there was was, was really astute in the fact that parts of our curriculum uh, that we work around these progression steps uh, are, are actually sort of uh, underpinned, if you like, by descriptions of learning that are misconstrued. And, and there's a misconception out there that they are designed for an assessment purpose, but they, are, they were deliberately designed through a research project uh, between uh, University of Wales, uh, Trinity St. David and Glasgow University, actually as planning tools. Now, there's a there's a step that needs to happen, as we all know, as educators between planning something and then assessing it. And believe me, that's the heavy lifting of being a practitioner. And so we're actually putting those practitioners in front of that heavy lifting and getting them to think in that way. And if you're only given the tools to plan, you know, surely, again, we come back to that agency, that subsidiarity of how we're going to do this as well. So so I've come down off my horse now. I'm really apologizing. <laughs> no, it's an interesting. That is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And I, I agree that like measure is a loaded word, right? It, it sort of it. it, it summons up the idea of a, of a, a meter stick with a, a you know a marker on it and that there's a standard and that some people are substandard and all of that stuff but there's also you know the, i mean maybe if we use different language if we talk about capture what's happening or to to research what's happening or to explore what's happening to 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 sort of to try to get a sense of the extent to which those purposes are being are being fulfilled, you know, like those are those are good questions to ask, which are which is it's more of a sort of like a bottom up approach to to capturing what's going on rather than this sort of deductive uh, top down thing. It's more like inductive bottom up, like grounded theory for both of you doing doctorates, like sort of yeah, like working with that was the way that I analysed my interview data with my PhD, you know, you just like, you get a big book, the corpus of text and you just see what's in it. And you, you, you look for themes and patterns that emerge out of what's happening, which would be maybe a, a, a smarter way of, of going about it. And, but, but it's, so you're saying that there are, there are people who are the, like the bean counters, if you like, are, are still, still um, 
dusting off their clipboards and trying to trying to capture this and and fire up spreadsheets and what have you absolutely and and you know coming back to your your ground up theory you know i think you've just qualified to work in wales with with that understanding so uh, so well done you can come over anytime you like but uh but you're right and and Kat and i sort of try and unpick this uh it's it's not just the system it's actually colleagues and it's it's through you know i think uh, being at a partial loss of what to do when it's left to you i think there's probably partially through an absence in uh, quality and uh, concrete professional learning and understanding and a depth of understanding. And partially, uh, and, and I use the word to blame here with, with you know, air quotes, uh, I think it's the stage that we're at in the journey as well. And I think everybody, whether it be, you know, mass education reform or teaching a lesson, wants to be able to pin down progress or movement forward in a very in you know in a, in a minutiae and detail and i think you know statutory speaking uh you know we're not even a year into this this new way of working so you know we're seven months in and already people are trying to sort of pin it down and say it's definitely going to be like this for good and it removes that opportunity of evolution from it but but you're right when you talk about the capture uh for, for us with learners uh, and, and Kat is, you know, is, is very far down this road. It's about getting that holistic picture. It's about encouraging and enabling the climate for learners to be more at the heart, not just of their learning, but actually of their reflective process of their learning as well. And the commenting and the identification of where they need to go in their learning. It's pulling teachers into that. And, and for us, one of, one of the big steps that I didn't think would be a big, big step for colleagues was actually uh, in, a, in a previous school and working towards it in my current school is, is putting children at the heart of what we previously referred to as parents' evenings. And, our, you know, our year five and our year six children actually leading their own parents' evenings and talking to their parents based on prior conversations with their teachers about how they do well, how they learn best. How can you help me as a mum, as a dad, as a grandparent, you know, uh, as a carer? Uh, and, and where do I fall down and why do I fall down? And it's about putting that holistic picture again, coming back to what they've learned and how they've learned uh, being, if you like, two lanes along that road underpinned by why they're learning it. And, I, you know, we're talking about curriculum there. And I know that's another conversation and that's a big conversation of why we do what we do in our curriculum as well. Thank you for that. Do you have anything to add to that, Kat? Um, I just think from a, a practical level and, and from a, a school level, it, it echoes our work on assessment and particularly around that understanding of progress echoes the themes sort of through this podcast around agency, trust, time. It all goes back to that because as a school leader, I've had to put time in so that we as um, colleagues professionally, we can sit together and we can talk about how will we know children are making progress if we haven't got these fixed endpoints. You know, we used to have like level criteria that we could work towards and tick children off a list and, and have these sliding scales of improvement or flight paths. Or, you know, we've been through all of this. Um, and I was like the data queen as a deputy head. And I absolutely loved a good graph and to show where children started and where they've got to. And well done, you know, we did a great job. And I've had to do so much unlearning and unthinking myself as a school leader to be able then to support my staff. But the biggest thing has been when I'm sat in a room now and talking about the progress of every individual child with their teacher and they're just talking, they're not bringing books, they're not showing evidence. I have to trust what they are saying. And also even from my, you know, that NQT, the newly qualified teacher in their first year of practice, 
they're able to talk about where the children are because they're with them every single day. Um, you know, and then it's my job to say, well, do they need anything additional? Do they need anything to challenge them a bit further or to support them in that thinking and, and build up that system within the school? So, you know, it, as, as Ty said, from a, um, a leadership perspective, there is still, I think, nervousness amongst colleagues because it's about letting go and it's about changing those systems of how we've worked previously. And we're still very much as a nation very early in this journey. It only became statutory in September. However, I think where more things are happening, like more Eston inspections, where they're recognising, you know, schools that are um, going down this route of um, a holistic view of assessment and understanding the progress children are making, that is giving the system more confidence. And then hopefully that will continue. The danger in the system is that Welsh government don't hold their nerve they've got to hold their nerve then at that political level of saying actually we don't want to have those facts and figures on children in year two we don't need to have um information on what happens when they leave primary school and the English and their maths and their science you know, which we've had previously and so we we rely one on in, as, as an individuals to not fuel that but also systemically Welsh government need to hold their nerve and allow us this time and this agency as well no, nothing makes a minister feel more comfortable than being provided by we are this much better than we were. And the then. same with head teachers, Ty, isn't it? That you know, that we've had that comfortableness, if that's even a word, when we would get the data yeah. packed through in the autumn term, because then we could go to governors and say, look how great we are. And it was just gaming. It was just attributing numbers to children, which is fundamentally wrong. You know, I'll get on my high horse now. You started me off on assessment. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the way we're working now is about understanding every child as an individual. And let's, let's be careful as well, because we've, we've fluctuated here. I've noticed in the conversation as well. We've talked about accountability and assessment. And we need to be careful because colleagues talk about it. Language is, you know, and we've had a theme running through this conversation already. Language is vital. You know, and having a shared definition and a common understanding of a language is vital to improvement, uh, you know, and, and really following some of, you know, Becky Calzone's tweets as well this week, you know, really pushing that, you know, the, the language of learning and making sure how that underpins us. I think as a system, not just as a school, but something you said right at the beginning there, Kat, that stimulates something that you, you always bang on about, really, isn't it? And I, I think, here, James, you, you might hear a confession from Kat. You're definitely going to get one from me. OK, uh, and I, I think I should whisper this. Uh, but I quite like the OECD. Uh, <laughs> that, okay, a lot of education materials. We're talking about leadership and trust and agency. You know, something that Kat pushes quite well and, and takes advantage of uh, is something around uh, the work that they've done on learning organisations around the four transversal uh, themes, isn't it, Kat? Uh, about, you know, trust, time, technology and thinking. If a leader is able to put energy an effort and consideration into those four aspects I think you would struggle to fail yeah I am I'll say it out loud I'm a big fan of the OECD no. <laughs> I'm not whispering it uh, and and for those reasons you know that the whole school as a learning organization model we've actually used from the day that we opened and um and and still use very much as that structure for our school for the the whole of our school system is built around the school as a learning organization model um and I think I would I would definitely attribute um the success I would say in terms of the um consistency and our consistent focus on learning to use in that model can i just quickly ask because because when i very first came across that phrase school is a learning organization i just thought 
Well, obviously, a school is a learning organization. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. But can you just quickly just define that for the benefit of listeners? What, what does that phrase mean to you? Well, that's what I would uh, quite often start many a presentation with, James, in as much as schools should be focused on learning, but schools are not. So many schools are focused on the wrong things. They're focused on um, judgments, on accountability, on being excellent, on making sure that they do X, Y and Z. And they actually lose that focus on learning. And I think, um, you know, alongside some of the early curriculum reforms in Welsh Government with um, the curriculum, there was also the professional learning reform. And we worked alongside... Um, people like Louise Stahl um, and um, Marco O'Cools and they looked at um, what would a school as a learning organization model actually look like for Wales so we've actually have a model now that is very unique to Wales um, and why it's unique is it has the four purposes at the heart of it so it's recognizing that those four purposes are actually there for us as organizations within Wales as well Um, and that school as a learning organization model sits around seven elements and those elements are looking at things like like um, creating a vision for learning. And again, that might sound so basic and so simple, but how many times do school leaders actually go back, revisit the vision and actually make sure it's focused on learning? Or does it just sit as a little paragraph on a website or in a prospectus and it ticks the box? You know, we've had these hard conversations and these um, this focus for, for quite a while now within our schools. Um, the model also looks at things, um, particularly around professional learning, you know, how we build in those continuous learning opportunities for our staff. How can we promote team learning and collaboration? How do we learn from the external system? Um, we can't just close our doors down. You know, the whole point of, of Curriculum for Wales is that we learn and work with others as well. How do we exchange that information? How do we build a culture of inquiry? So all of these elements feed into us being a learning organisation and they're very much um, action orientated in its work. I, I think replacing the word organisation with organism would actually make more sense. Uh, and and it's not about the learning perhaps that necessarily happens in the classroom, James, which I think was what you were alluding to. It's actually having the infrastructure of the organism learning from its its successes and its failures. Uh, and, and Kat's right, that the difference of the work that the OECD put in around, around Wales's reform there was the fact that it went right across to those 68 recommendations and put those four purposes right at the heart. So we've got in the centre, we've got the learning that happens with learners. And then around that, we've got those those seven key elements, that, as Kat has, has talked about some of them, that actually drive the infrastructure that allows that to happen in a successful way. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm really glad that I asked that question. Um, so... So, as you say, it's early days still. This is the first year that it's been statutory. I feel like we should maybe like do a check in each year for the next like few years, just to like just to <laughs> see how just to see how things are going, and maybe bring in some of our colleagues from the from the uh, implementation um, pilot. Um, thank you for that. I really really enjoyed it, and it's just super exciting. My goodness, my heart has been singing as we've been as we've been talking for so many reasons. This is just like it's happening it's happening it like just <laughs> over the border and my goodness it wouldn't it be nice if we could learn these lessons over here as well um so this is to be continued but for now let's park that and talk about both of you and to hear a little bit more about your own start starting with your own experience of education um what was your you, you're familiar with this format as avid fans of the podcast and so um, what was your school like? What was your experience of of school like and, and your later education? And then we'll do the so we'll do the school first of all, and we'll go cat then tie. 
and then we'll do this significant learning bits you know the, the sort of the moments that really shaped you as people and then we'll do that again one one then the other and then we'll we'll move into the rethinking education stuff so Kat over to you first what was your school like where, where did you go to school Okay, so I am um, a Newport girl, as they say, and uh, born and bred and still a head teacher in Newport now. Um, and I absolutely love school. I actually prepared for this question, James, and I asked my mum, I said, what was I like in school? And her response was, from the first day I started reception, I basically wanted to learn and I went in skipping, didn't even turn around and say goodbye and loved learning. And I suppose that is still with me now, you know, and I think I have been very fortunate through all of my education experiences. Um, I went to an infant school, then I moved to um, a different area within Newport, so I went to a different junior school, then a secondary school. And along the way, there have been significant teachers that I can still remember to this day, still in touch with. And um, they really shaped me. And, and I suppose, why did they shape me? Is because they believed in me. And that's all it went down to. It just went down to relationships. And I just loved learning. I, I sort of immersed myself in absolutely everything. Um, Ty will probably laugh at this, but um, I was also a little bit of an achievement junkie. And, um, oh, I know he's sitting um, open-mouthed to listeners that uh, uh, can't see his face right now. Um, but that also was to my de detriment. Um, so when I got to more sort of GCSEs and into A-levels, I never, ever, ever failed at anything. And that was huge for me because I got to A-levels and that whole change of system. And I'm talking, um, you know, late 90s. I was doing my A-levels around 97, 1998. And I started to really struggle because I was thrown into a world of um, working on my own, you know, and, and having to research and to do these things. And I couldn't cope with it. And actually there were a number of times when my dad used to have to come and pick me up from school because I was ill. I wasn't ill. I actually couldn't cope. Um, so I had fantastic teachers that really supported that. Um, got my A-level results and didn't get exactly as I wanted. I had very good grades, but not in the right subject areas. So my whole dream was to be a writer and to go to Birmingham, university to do English they accepted me and I had to say can you please not let me in because I don't want to do English anymore and I fell in love then with psychology and um, ended up in Cardiff University doing a, a BSc in psychology and that really shaped my thinking and um, has definitely interested me they told me that I couldn't be a teacher with a psychology degree work that one out um so, but I did manage to get onto a PGCE and, and again, managed to, um, you know, in, <laughs> just love learning. And, and I suppose that's what's guided me. So relationships first and foremost, but how that's shaped where I am now, I very much now want children. And with my own daughter, that experience of failure is absolutely key, you know, because at the age of 17, 18, experience it for the first time was tough. And I remember it being tough. Mm, my son's going through the same thing. He's in year 12 at the moment. And he's like, people talk about the year 12 wall as though you just like hit it hard and fast, but it's not quite like that. It's much more of a, like a slow motion, like sort of crashing into a wall. And it's, and, and there are some bits of what he's doing that are going really well, like, cause he's smart kid and he's able to pay attention in lessons and he's doing well on the tests and stuff, but he also knows that he's really behind in terms of workload. And it's I, I, we've just been talking lots about habits, like habit formation and really hard to change, mm -hmm. to, to change hard, hard worn habits. But I think James, something you said there is, is really apt because nobody spoke to me about those in that, at that time, because it wasn't something you did at that time. So nobody talked to me about 
who I was as a learner or any of the habits I was from because they just didn't that it was just that era in education where you were told something and you did it um and that's I suppose why I'm so determined as a head teacher to develop that love for learning and have those sort of um like learner capacities and that metacognition and really push that through our work in our school because I didn't have that and I struggled without it mm, thank you so over to you, Ty. What was your? Thank you for that, by the way. It's really interesting. What was your experience of school? Uh, mine, mine was quite varied, actually, James. I I grew up in a small mining town in the South Wales Valleys, uh, and uh, it was a a small primary school uh, existence. Uh, and you know, th there's there's two moments within that school, or two things in that school that stand out to me in primary school. Uh, one of them was me winning a mock election a mock national election uh and having to campaign and design the campaign and persuade the school to vote for me uh what i don't reveal if i ever reflect on it that it was a shoo-in in the south wales valleys because i was given the labor uh candidacy uh so so that 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 was a running i didn't really reflect on that at the time uh, and, and there was <laughs> you just took it as all about you it, it was all about me uh <laughs> And 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 the and the second biggest impact, and it, it's a strange one. Uh, we we had a teacher, and I remember him fondly. Now he, he was stern, he was upright, uh, he was very clipped, uh, he, a great great figure, and a real presence in the classroom. Uh, but but if I had finished and got through the work he'd set, it wouldn't be about giving me extra work or sending me on an errand with a little folded pieces of paper or or all the other things that seemed to happen around me. He would call me out and I would get to sit at his desk and he would play chess with me. And he would not just play chess with me, but he actually taught me the rigor of, and the love of the game. And he would he it was those moments that he talked to me and he talked to me and it still sits with me now. Uh, he talked to me as if he saw and he was talking to what I could be, not to what I was. You know, and, and not to, to, you know, just another kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> random young uh, Valley Zoic, if you like, in his classroom, you know, uh, and, and those two things sat with me hugely. Uh, it, there was a huge disruption in my education uh, caused by Margaret Thatcher, and, and I didn't know her personally. Uh, but but what, what she did was she actually took away uh, my, my dad's employment in closing down the coal mines. Uh, and, and we as a family ended up pretty much as, as, as the majority of families did in the South Wales Valleys and the north uh, of England. Uh, we ended up with nothing and we had no choice. So we, we actually lost everything uh, as a family. And the, my, my father was not uh, willing to, to join the, the, the lines at, at, the, at the Dole office. And he was not willing for us to sort of uh, recede into that sort of what I would call it is, is a very kind of plateaued grey existence and a lack of aspiration that sort of descended upon those areas for a long period of time. Uh, and, and he packed us all up and we went to live in South Africa. So I saw a very different side of the world. I saw a very different side of schooling uh, and some some really uh, sort, of, sort of big moments there in education with, for me was the first time I was caned uh, as a child that still sits with me. Uh, and actually the first time I was caned wasn't my fault, but there was an all for one and a one for all attitude in the school we were in. And if there was misbehavior from one child, the whole class were caned. So that's the way we operated. Oh, my goodness. That, yes, that, that, that's an interesting concept there. And then there was a second momentous occasion uh, where I corrected a teacher's spelling uh, that she'd written on the on the on the board, the blackboard. I remember it now. She'd misspelled aeroplane. Uh, she'd actually spelt it without the, the, the first E. 
uh, uh, and I also remember uh, the, the shoe from her foot glancing the side of my head as she threw it for me for speaking out of turn. So, you know, uh, if, if you like uh, that, that, that one experience uh, in that small valley school and that very different, uh, you know, experience in, in that real sort of uh, hardline South African, uh, what, what was basically a, a foreign national school, uh, almost, almost prep school in, in a way, uh, have shaped me and, and, and brought me to a point uh, where for me it's about the opportunity of seeing that child as the adult and for me it's about lifting the lid and you know giving them the chair to look over the fence however you want to address it uh, I, I've got a real passion for you know lifting lifting children up and giving them the opportunity now something always sat with me when I first started teaching that and it was a conversation in the staff room where parents uh, yeah were looked down upon by colleagues because they had gone to the school I was in, they were in the area I was in, uh, and they hadn't moved off anywhere else. Uh, and for me, that that they were missing the crux of it. You know, some of those parents, yes, were, were there because they hadn't had a choice. Some were there because they'd had a choice. But for me, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you are provisioned and furnished with the climate that gives you that option and that choice. And if you decide to stay and grow up and contribute back to that area that you grew in, so be it, that's great. If you have to do that and there's no other option, that's for me where the problems creep in as well. Uh, and, and there's a little bit of synergy, I think, with, with your son and, and Kat's story here. Uh, really good memory, very good recall, uh, flew GCSEs, highest grades my school had ever seen uh, at the time uh, and really struggled at A-level. And it took me less than four weeks to realize that it wasn't me. It was the school that wasn't furnishing me with the right kind of approach, I think, uh, as well as perhaps a little bit of me and not being able to manage myself in that way. And I actually ended up going and doing my A-levels, ironically, in a year and getting them out the way in college. And as I did that, uh, I, I was destined to go to university and go through. Uh, and I actually pressed the pause button and said, you know, what if I did something I wanted to do and not what the system expected? And there are a number of times in my my life where I've thrown those room stones up, James, uh, just sometimes perhaps to see where they land. Uh, and where they landed at that time, at 17, I found myself enlisting in, in the army. And so I joined the army and became a, a young soldier. Uh, this was back This was back here. How long were you in South Africa for? We were only living there for two and a half years. Uh, it, it, what, this... what years were they out of interest? Uh, those the years of that, that would have been, let me think there now, that would have been 87 to 89. So just before... I see. So pre-Mandela. Pre Mandela was came out of prison in about 90, I think, didn't he? Yes, he did. It was, it was in the height of apartheid. Uh, it, there was a real, pre that Mandela release, there was a real uh, surge of political uh, unrest. Uh, and you know, yeah. it, it was a bubbling hotspot. To be it honest, was. I, I'm reading a book about that at the moment. Sorry, just as a bit of an aside, um, I've read an amazing book. I really recommend it called "Knowing Mandela" by this journalist called John Carlin. It's only a slim little book, but it's just absolutely fascinating. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, and I, I'm very aware that that was a, an unbelievably volatile period of time. And, and can you imagine, as you know, a a, a ten. 11 year old Welsh Valley's child <laughs> living with what now we are fully aware of uh, in a very white privileged apartheid based community and society you know my mind boggles when I think about what what did that do for me and how how has that in it's just 
bizarre, you know, and, and worlds apart, you know, and I think in itself is probably a short story worth writing in itself, you know. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. So, so, sorry. So to come back, so you came back and enlisted in the army. Yeah, came back, joined the army. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do in the army. Again, uh, along Cat's line, you know, qu quite quite a good achiever. Uh, another sort of achievement, and uh, you know, we you sit tests when you join the army and barb tests. And at the time, it was the highest score that had been seen in the recruitment office in Cardiff. Uh, and th th some careers popped up that I didn't really know about. Sounded intriguing, and I end up ended up working for for British military intelligence for several years, James. So, you know, uh, and, and as they say, sort of got the T-shirt, uh, watched the video, wore the hat. Uh, and it was during that time that I found myself in what is referred to as a super sanger or a sanger, you know, a, a fortified tower. Uh, it was actually on a wet and windy night in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I, I looked out. I was, you know, in that sort of moment, if you like, that beta moment between uh, being fully awake and just drifting off into unconsciousness and trying to stay awake. And I just sat up and looked around and just thought, what am I doing with my life? What is this about? I was spending my time and my days uh, dealing with situations that were very, very reductive. Like you said, they were very negative. Uh, there was very few uh, people pleased to see us, you know, and, and pleased with the work that we're doing. And, and on the side, I'd started working with a, a local uh, group of children who were children of, of forces personnel. And I was finding I was getting more of a life buzz and enjoyment from that than I ever did uh, from the role that I was doing. So that's the point where I decided to leave. Uh, and I left and I applied to become a teacher. Uh, and, and then I got accepted as that as a mature student. Uh, and at the same time, I deferred the entry uh, and went and spent uh, a year traveling around the world. So, you know, and coming back then to get on to teaching, as, as they say, the, the rest is history, if you like. Mm, wow, fascinating! My goodness, I mean, this, we've heard quite a few moments of of significant learning there, but we'll maybe we'll maybe revisit that in a, in a moment. So let's let's go back to Cat. Um, what what are the moments of of significant learning that that you that you can identify that have really shaped your thinking or shapes the shapes the trajectory of your life? I think that one of the significant ones for me was making that decision the day of A-level results coming out and saying, I changed my mind. I don't want to be a writer anymore. I want to look at psychology. And my mum and dad were like, what on earth? You know, like, why are you thinking about this right now? And, and I think I had that from nowhere came this bravery inside of me to say, it doesn't sit right with me. I have to do what is in my heart right now. And, and I think from that moment on, I have very much led with my heart. Um, and I think I very much have, have always gone with that. And I didn't up until that point, that was a definite moment for me. Um, I think looking back through once I became a teacher, um, I've had, you know, amazing opportunities, particularly of, of people believing in me, investing in me. Um, and I was very fortunate to be given, um, or given I was became, uh, a deputy head in my fourth year of teaching uh, for a large infant school at the time and again a massive significant moment walking into that building with um, colleagues that were old enough to be my mum and I was there this young thing that was taking over as the deputy head and was going to be leading them you know and where do you start and and the head teacher at the time had a lot of faith in me and and still has a lot of faith in me but um, particularly you know supported me in that way and and showed me how to be that um, compassionate and values-based leader um, so I think that was a, a huge significant 
significance there. Um, and then obviously I can't uh, forget getting the job of my dreams and, and going for that you know job. And I can still remember going into that interview. It was a two day interview. I came away from day one thinking, all right, I, I'm happy. I couldn't do any more. Walked into day two and thought, oh, I can't see any other people. What's going on here? Texting my mum very quickly. There's only me here. Not quite sure what this means. And realized afterwards and found out afterwards I was the only one called back for day two of the interviews and um, but then it was a bit like that all or nothing wasn't it if I didn't get the job I'd lost it against myself so that feeling was just enormous um, and then I hit the ground running I got the job and then the next day I was straight into meetings to decide the name of the school the logo what was going to happen um, there would always been somebody very, very significant in my life as well, um, my dear Nana. Um, so my Nana um, came from Scotland to Wales, emigrated, as we would say in those days, <laughs> um, sort of uh, late 60s, I think it was, and moved to Wales. Um, she was an absolute powerhouse of a woman. She was five foot nothing, but you would not mess with my Nana. And actually, the more I, I think about her, the more she really led the way in International Women's Day yesterday. She really led the way for gender equality. You know, she went to work. Um, um, when all of her uh, friends would stay at home and cook and clean and, and she stood up to my papa and saying no this is my money and I'm doing what I want with it we're going on this holiday you know she she wasn't your typical housewife as, as people were in those days um, and she very much was my guide through my life um, my mum and dad couldn't afford to send me to university and my dad actually gave up a very good uh, career to become a Baptist minister um, very similar time in that I went to university so he gave up a huge income to become a Baptist minister and was going back and forth to university in London so my nana um, paid for me to go through university and it was always by my side and um, the day I became a head she was just the proudest person ever um but sadly and very very quickly uh, three days after i got the job of my dreams my nana passed away um so that was such a huge turning point for me and and what i didn't do was process that enough because what i did do as the achievement junkie that i am is i threw myself into work so i think as i opened jubilee park i had this just this niggle constantly about my nana uh, and what i was i going to do and i just had to try and channel that into I'm doing the best I can and I want to show um, you know, that I can do what I can do because she always had that belief in me. Um, and I suppose that was hugely significant for me. Um, and then I can't forget my darling girl either. Um, I was, um, somebody probably would have described me in my early leadership role as um, a person that would get it done, but probably didn't have much empathy, probably had very little emotional intelligence in my early leadership days and um and then my my daughter came along uh, Lola Rose and she's 11 now and I think she has taught me to also have a life and to also take that step back have that different viewpoint of education and of work you know and I think that 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 has, has really supported um, my thinking and sort of helped me so those two becoming a mum getting the job of my dreams, losing my nana has <laughs> all come together um, in this sort of like concoction of where I am now um, and in a very good place um, and loving, um, you know, started a doctorate then in September 2019. So in fourth year now of doctoral studies and also loving that. So yeah, that's a, a pit stop of my challenges and key moments. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's incredible. What's your, what's your doctorate theme is the final question on this. 
Okay, so my theme is around um, creating the conditions to thrive and what I'm exploring is the interrelationship between organisational culture, collaboration and teacher wellbeing um, through a narrative inquiry. So really wanting to hear the lived experiences of teachers, um, very much teachers are put in the box of teachers. And you think of how many there are, we're all so, so different. Um, I think the I'm very much focusing on um, South Wales and teachers in South Wales, particularly at the moment around curriculum reform as well and getting their lived experiences and, and you know, sort of saying if you're in culture within an organisation shapes behaviours, it shapes action. So what happens within those organisations then will we'll look at the levels of collaboration and how much time that's afforded and priority that's afforded for teachers and then how ultimately does that impact teacher well-being and I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to come from more of a, a positive psychology angle looking at um, Seligman's work around the PERMA model uh, and the reason for that is that um, I truly love the profession I am in it, it's not a job to me and people talk to, about work-life balance I actually don't because part of who I am is being a leader and being an educationalist and I absolutely am passionate about learning and, and wanting that to that shapes me that is who I am it's not I go to do a job part of who Kat is is Kat is a head teacher and a learner um, and there's so much doom and gloom about our profession and people leaving and poor recruitment and you know stress and high levels of well-being so um, low levels of well-being and I just want to be able to to look at this research and actually find out from teachers you know what is happening um, and try and take that back to mm. the, the system and policy level. Yeah, and it sounds like the, the the very way in which you're doing that by speaking to teachers and hearing their stories, that's sort of what that's the mechanism by which that happens, right? Is that's a, that's an act of connection, and I think that people feel disconnected often in a sort of depersonalized system. Um, that often the, the, there's lots of schools now that don't have staff rooms; they don't sort of encourage like people to 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 um, to get together and to spend time together and people just want to be seen and, and people's needs are pretty sort of well understood aren't they people yeah. want to be seen they want to be heard they want to be understood they want to have a small amount of agency over what they do and I think that if we did that and it sounds like the work that you're doing is is doing that in spades I think that we would have a much healthier picture with regard to recruitment and retention mm -hmm. so that sounds fascinating thank you for that amazing um, and over to you, Ty. So, so we heard um, the the sort of the the big sort of chapters in your life, like South Africa, being in the army, realizing that you wanted to become a teacher, uh, and some of those were quite significant, you know, moments, of course. But like, is there anything else that that springs to mind as you look back over that over that period of time, the big ideas that have really shaped you? I think you know, picking up on what you've just said, really, as well about that that relational basis and and that ability and that power of connecting and connection and i i you know that that year i talked about i took out traveling uh was, was hugely powerful uh in in a transitional uh approach to moving from being a soldier to actually engaging and getting my head around what education was all about because you know i, I had a very distinct impression of what you do to teach uh and, and would probably put in brackets instruct after it uh, and I think that was probably how I early, uh, that's my early career of teaching was instructing. Uh, but actually, as, as, as you move yourself on foot and by sea and by land and air around the world in a in a very kind of primitive way, as it were, for that year, uh, you actually understand and become become to know and, and, and appreciate the value of relationships and and what you can be and, and how you can support and challenge people and, and vice versa. And I think in another part that 
and again about relationships another part that sort of opened my eyes uh was an opportunity that I had during my degree to go and study in Norway for seven months uh, and, and actually engage in uh, a cultural and education program as part of my degree there we're working with students from all over the world from uh, from as far away as, as Oregon uh, to, to a number of them from Lithuania and, and Italy and Germany so it, it was that connectivity I think and that richness and diversity that I was able to encounter both through being a soldier traveling uh, and those connections in Norway that I try and carry with me uh, and it really underpins as I, as I said earlier really that opportunity that I want I want I want to lift those learners and those children and those families up and and, and, and allow them to see and experience the world uh, because our world you know particularly recently uh, and in recent times it, it can be and we can allow it all too easily to become too small uh, and, and with that I think we're all very familiar with the dangers of that and I think that's something that's always at the forefront of my of my mind really uh, I, I think big moments were moving from my first teaching post to my second and seeing how leadership could be different, you know, hugely influential for me, really. Uh, and then and then having those opportunities and that trust. And that was the, the big switch on that, that I, you know, I was not micromanaged and I was given an objective uh, and I was told to come back when I'd done it. And without that detailed sort of management in between, which just, you know, being a soldier uh, and working in, in the school I worked in, in in the first few years of my career was just mind-blowing and, and such an opportunity for me. But I think one of those big significant moments that I look back on uh, as a teacher was that uh, myself and a colleague took took six children from from a small town from Barry Island uh, to actually run workshops and, and, and run a lecture in Michigan State University at an international uh, ed conference. Uh, and actually we, we, we did the warm-up uh, for, for Yong Zhao uh, which was which was fantastic. All right, uh, you know, not just to meet him and, and get and start to work with him there, uh, but actually to have these six children, none of which had been uh, overseas, none of which had been in a university environment, now found themselves in Michigan State amongst these global education thinkers, telling these global education thinkers all about what social entrepreneurship was, what it looked like. And actually, we're asking the wrong people in our community. We're asking adults about how things should change. And they presented a very strong case that we should be asking the children and we should be listening to the children and we should be acting on it. And, and to me, I think way back then, that was probably a precursor to even learn a voice, you know, being such, such a large aspect of schools. And it was these, these six girls that we took who were taking the power of their community and making a change. Uh, for what they wanted from their community and the, the society at large. So, so those were huge sort of drivers for me. Uh, and, and as Kat has, has alluded to, there's no, you know, there's no getting away from, from family and friends then as well, isn't it? Influencing and driving that as a person. Uh, yes, it, it's, it, it's been, if you like, a rich tapestry of an experience. Uh, and I think what drives me and what keeps me going and what shaped that uh, has been the continual want uh, for children as they develop to have choices and not have that narrowed by an education system. And it narrows in options for GCSEs, it narrows in grades, it narrows in lessons you get every day in our very kind of perfunctory and utilitarian timetabling system. It narrows in every aspect of their education. And I'm living it with a year eight child at home now, you know, and I, I really try hard. And last night was a great example. What were the highlights of your day? I asked my son uh, and he looked at me and went, 
what? I went to school. Now, how frightening is that, that he's been in school for in a secondary system for two years and that's his natural response. And, and I would honestly say two, two and a half years ago, he would have come home and, and you know, there would have been a, a, a verbose discussion around what was great from the day, what was rubbish about the day, you know, and, and the world was his oyster. And it just, it's just conformity that is chiseling off the edges. And the problem is you chisel off too many edges and you don't, you don't have any core left, you know, and, and it's, it's really frightening as a parent to see that happening. Uh, and it might be him, it might be the system, it might be the school. Uh, however, you know, that's not right. And I want, my, my job is to keep that away and at bay and, and part those seas of, of oppression, if you like, for as long as possible. Mm, completely. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm doing, no, and you know, and I'm doing an Ed Doc as well, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, so, I was, I was going to ask, on. what's, what's the theme on. of your one? Uh, mine is is is, is system-based and really, for me, moving between that sort of macro-based system and the meso uh, and the focus for me is about uh, in what ways to head teachers influence uh, translating policy to practice in schools, specifically curriculum in, in the case uh, that's the case of, of this study. And, you know, you know, do they influence it? How do they influence it? How does that role of national policy, national guidance, that that role of, of, of law and legislation? Uh, you know, what, what's the, the gap there? And what's the space between perception and reality of staff and, you know, working and talking with staff right through the schools as well, uh, where this is happening successfully and where it's not. Uh, and, and really trying to get under, if you like, the, the, the feeling of perception of if the school is doing well in implementing the policy, if it's not. And how does that happen? And is a head teacher enabling that? Is the staff enabling that? Is there this a relationship in that? That I don't know. And, that, and that's where I am with that, really. So, uh, and and for me, that's that's built upon again that whole interest in in agency and subsidiarity. And you know, is 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 it reality, or is it is it some kind of created subjective reality that we all create? And and is that a common truth across schools? You know, uh, there's a big discussion in that in itself, no doubt. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. Oh, wow. That that sounds absolutely fascinating. I want to read your both of your dissertations when they're done. So let's move in to this final section of the of this conversation, the rethinking education bit. You'll be familiar with the format. Let's let's bring this back to the Welsh context: positives, challenges solutions or possible solutions so what's the thing that you're you talked about so much stuff to be excited about earlier but what's the thing that you think is the most amazing thing about what's happening currently the the most positive thing about what's happening in the welsh context again we'll, we'll take these three questions we'll go cat then tie i think the most positive thing that's happening in education in wales right now is that agency that we are afforded it's that um the framework that we've been given um to use as school leaders and to design a curriculum that's right for our children within our communities um for me at a school level where that's working is is really looking at that culture of learning we're creating and how do we ensure that we continually focus on learning and creating that culture um and with that bring in that understanding of pedagogy and progression that we've we've talked about through this podcast and, and I think that's really exciting and exciting opportunities going forward yeah thank you what about you Tay I I think for me it's and you know here here's another confession as well really I kind of revel in that chaotic uh and it's for me the interest is really and, and the excitement and what's going well is 
how we can already see that we've gone from something that wasn't a product and was an idea to something that is, is you know, is actually in existence to then having the chaotic reaction uh, across the system in Wales to now that being almost reduced to more of a complex system, you know, and we're just trying to navigate the complexity of it now, not the chaos of it and, and how that will evolve uh, through practitioners and colleagues, you know, and, and professional learning and just genuine honesty and transparency uh, from us and the system in turning that into then order and then turning that order into outcome. You know, that that's the exciting part for me. Uh, and I can see that as a, as a longevity, as, 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 a, as a series of sort of smaller timelines. Uh, and it's just really exciting to try and help and support colleagues to to get them over the next kind of obstacle and get them over the next, you know, and, and see this as, as, as a whole obstacle course rather than just a ditch where you're leopard crawling through water or, you know, some some monkey bars where you're swinging across it. You know, let's have a look at the, the, the totality of this. But most importantly, let's let's always and never move away from the why ever, you know, and we move on from the why and. You know, we see it here every day, Kat and I, you know, let's not be embarrassed and let's not think it's trite in going back to it every single day in what we do, because that's what keeps us true and what keeps us honest in what we do. And that's the exciting bit for me, really. And that's the strength of the system is that I, as a head teacher in a country, can talk in that way about my education system and my curriculum. You know, let, let's draw up a list of how many others could do that. Yeah, it won't take long. Um <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So so what do you see as the major challenges, given all of this amazing positive stuff happening? There's a lot going on, <laughs> you know, just like as you just as you just described. What do you see as the major challenge in the next in the next sort of two to three years, say, as, as people start to start to make their way? What do you think are the major sort of pitfalls, that, the, the ways in which this might go wrong, the ways in which we need to be quite mindful about keeping this on the track and like you say, keeping that why at the center. I think the first, um, you know, challenge that we're, we're looking at is people holding their nerve. And I mean that on every layer within the system. So from a head teacher perspective that, that head teachers still keep that confidence that that um, positivity around the new curriculum and don't slip back into those old habits and those old ways or feel like they have to go back to, you know, providing some sort of data on that individual child level or they're accountable in a, in that different way and slip back into those old habits. And, and I think what the challenge there is, is from a national perspective, ensuring that professional learning is there for all aspects of education um, so not just providing um, professional learning for teachers and teaching assistants but also for school leaders so we can continue curriculum design is not a product as Ty has mentioned before it's an ongoing process and we need this is only the beginning of our curriculum reform and I think the danger sometimes is it came in you know September 22 we're done well, absolutely not. We're just at the start. And it's keeping that realisation that we're just at the start. Um, it would be really remiss of me as a head teacher in Wales to not mention the fact that we need to be adequately funded. And I'm very, very passionate about that, that, you know, curriculum reform cannot be done on the cheap and it cannot be done just on the the will of um, educators that are passionate about learning we need to be appropriately funded for our children and, and our schools and I, and I think the third challenge for me is that like I've mentioned earlier that um, government hold their nerve as well and that um, you know we we have and I know James you've mentioned this in previous podcasts and how quickly education ministers change and then you get a new one in and there's a new focus 
we have to be in this for the long haul to actually see that this will work. Um, Ty and I had um, a brilliant experience in, in Singapore in July of last year. We were on a British Council visit and they it was just incredible to see the vision and the foresight of one nation having a single-minded attitude to education and appropriately funding it. Now, I'm not going to go into the, the pluses and minuses of education in Singapore, and it's not a utopia by any stretch of the imagination, but where they did have um, a very firm view was they were all in this together and they didn't change at the whim of, of different people and um, they spent time and I think that's what we need within our system now we need time um, and a, a government to continue to support that work. Yeah sure you sure as, as you know in the implementation program we talk about how you you know we can anticipate we can guarantee that there will be bumps in the road that there's you know to 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 you know put it mildly and that's the nature of reality is that there are unexpected things and there are con there are, there are complications that you know that there are there are consequences to what we do and some of them we're not even aware of you know for for some time um and it's quite a difficult balance to strike that because they're like on the one hand there's a bit of a weather vane their sort of um, tendency isn't there among amongst politicians and among school leaders to just like sort of just like you see you, you start doing some policy and the first sign that it's not working you sort of just quickly change to something else and then you quickly change to something else and there's just this never-ending churn and then the opposite sort of problem is the sunk cost fallacy right which is like if something isn't working <laughs> and then just thinking well we've well we're up to our necks in it now we just need to keep digging sort of thing and and that's a that's a tough thing to do but but and and it's and it sort of comes back to that to that without wanting to set you off Ty it comes back to that question of of measuring and of, of I won't use that word again but like monitoring and evaluating what you're doing and we, we talk about those pivotal persevere meetings if you remember to sort of to to come together to review a, a whole bunch of data bottom-up stuff um, looking at what what's happening on the ground, what people are saying about what's happening, as well as looking at you know other types of data that we might collect, and continually orienting ourselves towards the optimal way of of achieving that vision, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it, and it is there's a, there's a mechanism there. There's a there's a set of tools and practices I think that we can use to to help people to hold their nerve, to help them to make it so that you don't just feel like it's blind faith, that it's actually that there's a process in place. And actually that you're going to be nimble on your feet and be agile and recognize that what you think is the path currently towards fulfilling those purposes might look quite different two or three years from now from what you think it looks like now. But you'll have sort of followed your nose all, uh, every step along the way, you know. Um, and so that's that's and, and this pilot that we're running is really exciting. I think that the, the fact that it's it's no coincidence that Wales has been so open-minded and being the first country that we have worked with to to fund this pilot to to embrace this idea and let's see where that goes but it's it's very exciting um so thank you for that so astute viewers may notice that we've all changed our costumes for this final part of the conversation especially actually i think i'm probably wearing the same jumper as i was last time um so let's move into the solution. So we're going to. We we left last time, Kat. You were talking about the challenges that that, that uh, uh, Wales faces at a number of different levels in keeping this this um, project on on track. Um, so let's talk about some ways that we can make that happen. Let's move into solutions, and then we'll move to your challenges and and fixes, Ty. So what are your thoughts, Kat, on how how we can how we can keep this on track? 
Yeah, I think first and foremost, for me, um, it's about people holding their nerve. Uh, and I mean holding their nerve at every layer of the system. Um, so we're talking about school leaders holding their nerve, making sure that we're prioritising professional learning. So we're keeping on learning as both leaders and giving our staff the opportunity to do that. And I think as well, it's about um, the middle tier holding their nerve and government holding their nerve, not just um, looking at curriculum for Wales and thinking, oh my gosh, we've got to change it because X, Y and Z has happened. Um, you know, we've, we talked about um, policy development being very much at the whim of politicians often. And I think that's something that we've got to address within Wales, that if we have a new education minister, we need to have that confidence that the journey of Curriculum for Wales and the intent of Curriculum for Wales actually will continue in the spirit in which it's intended now. And I think if we have these assurances from a policy level and from politicians, then actually it would support school leaders to actually develop and want to change and want to go into this new era. Um, quite often we're at the whim of whatever the current education minister is and I think that's something that can be a real challenge for us as school leaders. Um, it would be really remiss of me not to talk about funding. As a head teacher in Wales at the moment, we're facing huge budget cuts to our schools. And, and with this can often become a, an issue when you're thinking of professional learning and, and the challenges of providing that time for our staff to learn and to grow and to work collaboratively. I think that it needs to be adequately funded. Our schools are facing astronomical budget cuts that I have never, ever experienced as a school leader. Um, and it's going to be very tough for schools over the next couple of years. But in that, there still is that moral purpose and, and that drive and that why um, that has to keep us focused. And, you know, I will openly say that I will still prioritise professional learning within my school. I might lose staff, but I will make sure the staff that I have got are adequately trained. And I think that is, is really important. Um, Ty and I were really fortunate actually um, back in June last year uh, to have the opportunity of traveling to Singapore as part of a, a British Council visit. Um, and what really struck us about Singapore was number one, they didn't actually have to control budgets as head teachers. That was rather nice. It was all centrally funded and they were given a nice little pot of money to, to play about with and to spend. Um, definitely didn't have the complexities that we face in terms of budget. But also they have this single minded vision and that has lasted the test of time. So despite the change of education ministers, they have had this relentless focus and that has been driven by the wider vision for Singapore and vision for education. And I think that is probably one of the greatest challenges that that we face right now in Wales. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so you were talking about professional learning there when we spoke Last week, you talked about this idea of schools as learning organisations, and I know that that's been very central to your thinking. When I first came across this idea a while ago, I thought, what does that even mean? Like, of course, a school is a learning organisation. That's like literally what a school is. But so, so just for the benefit of viewers or listeners, if, if people haven't come across this before, can you just explain a bit about what a learning organisation is and what that means in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Scholars Learning Organisation model for Wales actually has been something that has been developed um, over the last couple of years. We spoke for the Welsh curriculum and, and particularly um, the work of Louise Stahl and Marco Cools. Um, they spent a lot of time working with uh, practitioners in Wales to really look at what does it mean. And for us, it has um, the four purposes um, of our curriculum at the heart of the model. It then has seven elements to the model and they're really focused on learning. And you said, James, you know, schools should be focused on learning, but I can absolutely say not all are. 
a lot of school leaders focus on the wrong things, in my opinion, and that actually detracts from that relentless focus on learning. So what the SLO model provides are um, seven key areas that we can help to focus on, things like um, developing a shared vision on learners and learning. Um, and again, I would say to, to listeners, how often do you go back to your school vision? Is it something that just sits in a prospectus or on a website and looks lovely? Or do you actually interrogate it? Do you actually put it up as a mirror to your practices every day and, and use it to drive learning within your schools? Um, it talks a lot around um, promoting that collaboration, promoting continuous learning for all staff not just teachers, you know, teaching assistants, they're quite often that forgotten component and, and you know, a huge vital part of our system. Um, making sure we're developing that culture of inquiry and innovation, getting that level of curiosity into our schools and, and particularly leading that from the top. Um, the four the transversal themes that we've talked about as well come through the SLO model. And they are time, trust, technology, and thinking together. And very much they are the four themes that help us develop as learning organisations within our school. Um, again, I was in that unique opportunity of opening Jubilee Park as a, as a new school and being able to take the SLO model and almost use it as a backbone to the strategic development of the school. And, and what I can say now, five and a half years in, is we are relentlessly focused on learning um, and we can see the impact of that model. Mm, thank you. Thank you. It's really, really lovely to hear that. And, and so it, it seems to be about like taking the professional learning of everybody equally importantly, right? And not just making it about like it's about the kids learning, but so that every adult is, is you know, supported to learn and develop and, and grow their practice as well. Yeah, absolutely. And funny enough, um, this week I led a professional learning network for the cluster of schools that um, I'm a head teacher in. And we read uh, chapter one of Leading Spirals of Inquiry by uh, Kayser and Halbert. And it was such a refreshing read. And actually one of the, the one of the leaders in the cluster said it's the most uplifting read that they had, had read in you know, for years. And, and what they talk about is that we talk about curiosity, we talk about learning, we talk about growth mindset and all these things for children. But if you don't have it, that organ organizational level first it's not going to work you have to be embodying it as teachers and actually they put a bit in the um in the book and it was a quote from someone I can't remember who but it said if you aren't squirming you aren't learning and I love that that's like stuck with me all week um, and I keep like thinking as I'm walking around to my teachers you know if you're not squirming I want to know why you know and and I just think what a lovely thing to to think about that we all are learners and people will say they're learners but act, actually do are they are they given that time and afforded those opportunities to really sit and think and reflect about learning and their practices? Mm, fantastic. I saw that you I saw that you posted about that on Twitter. I'll have to dig that out. I've not seen that book. So um, it's really, good. It yeah, really good. Book. Thank you for that. I'm going to keep on to that as well. If you're not squirming, you're not learning that, that whole <laughs> idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable or with discomfort. And I think, James, for teachers for so long we have been the people that have been the font of all knowledge the holder of the curriculum we would go in we were given something to do we would do it um, and it's very very different now and again you go back to the challenges I think that is a huge challenge for the profession for those of us that have been in it longer than the than the newly qualified teachers coming in um, you know and and it's almost changing our mindset as to what is a teacher what is a school leader because I think the, the school leaders of the past and the school leaders of, of being very much the people that manage schools as long gone and, and we have to go into this new era being learners. Mm, thank you, love it. Okay, so Ty, um, let's let's look at your, your choices now for what, what you see as the major challenges 
and how might we overcome those challenges in the months and years ahead? I think for, for us here in Wales in particular, uh, I think really it's, and, and building on some of the points that Kat raised there, uh, I think it's about trying to eliminate some of the noise in the system. And, and Kat alluded to perhaps in Wales, uh, that organisation and holding the nerve in the middle tier. Uh, I think perhaps for me, it's about uh, re reducing that noise more so and actually reducing the impact uh, of that ability, if you like, and removing that concern about holding the nerve. Uh, and, you know, what we did see in Singapore and, and a real lesson for us is that there was a lot of direct government to school working uh, and the relationship was really strong between policy and practice. Uh, and for me, I think that's a real challenge in, in, in how we can harness that uh, and how we can benefit from that. And that leads to kind of, if you like, and underpins my, my second big challenge is, you know, there's, there's a real driver of uh, co-construction and collaboration around uh, defining and setting out the initial steps of the journey of reform here in Wales. Uh, with regards to that kind of, if you like, triumvirate of, of academic uh, involvement, policy involvement and practice involvement. Uh, and I think for us in Wales, it's about making sure that that just doesn't become sort of a, a historical rhetoric, if you like. I think we need to take action on that. Uh, we need to not just be saying and talking about that now. We need to be doing about it. And I think that's really key. And I think that's probably the challenge in the system is how we maintain that uh, and maintain the value in that. Uh, and I think there's something as well, not just about pointing the finger here, because a lot of what I've just said is really uh, a point at the system. But I think actually colleagues, leaders and practitioners need to take up a bit of the heavy lifting as well. And I think we need to go towards those academics uh, and those policymakers and take our own steps as well and take this as an opportunity. And uh, we had governors in school yesterday actually talking to learners uh, about their learning and how they learn best. Uh, and it was quite enlightening that, that many of the learners that, that spoke to our governing body uh, and, and as they walked around the school and had sort of direct conversation with them were said that they were frightened by blank pages. And I think there's actually a, a lesson in that and something that I did notice uh, when, when we worked at a national level is that teachers and leaders are frightened by a blank page as well. And very often we, we argue and we debate and we push back and we cajole the system, explaining what we're not happy with. Uh, and then all too often that comes along with that when we're asked what we need and we're given that opportunity to fill that void, uh, we don't know what we want and we, and we don't take that, that opportunity. So for me, it's about the profession stepping forward and having confidence in, its, in itself and my colleagues having confidence in themselves as well. You know, we're all head teachers. We're all teachers formally uh, and, for, and, and, you know, at the forefront of what we do is teaching and learning. But it's having confidence and understanding that we do know what we're doing, even within this new paradigm. And then the other challenge for me is systemic creep. Uh, and that appears, I think, as, as an accountability and an assessment creep. But also because of those two drivers, uh, we've got what Mark Priestley refers to uh, quite commonly, if you like, as a sort of spiral of specificity. Uh, and what we find is our, our system and our curriculum uh, and our reform model that was all about trust, uh, one of those four transversal themes. It was all around time as well, another one. And it was all about collaborating and thinking together. Uh, what you've got there now is, is that blank paper that's not being filled in by the professionals is very easily being filled in uh, by the other tiers and large organizations within the system. And it's becoming, if you like, justification for their existence uh, rather than that freedom and that time and that professionalism, professionalism. Uh, that we need as leaders, really. So, so those are the challenges. Uh, and, and, and amongst all of that is, if you like, you know, that, that and bringing it back to that sort of Kinevin framework, that understanding 
uh, and, and that decision-making processes and that comfortable in the uncomfortable uh, that we've talked about and heard you talk about on other episodes, really, and understanding that we can exist in chaos, we can exist in complexity, uh, in the complicated and in the clear. Uh, and in all of those kind of states, there's a degree of confusion. And, and it, it's about being happy with that and understanding how we work from that. Uh, and, and I think really it's about making sure that we've got our eyes firmly on the horizon. Yeah. Do you know what? That's so interesting because because like, like, as a practitioner myself, I used to love making kids confused. <laughs> like, and, and it's sort of a funny thing because it's like people just think, well, that's ridiculous. You should be helping them to understand things. But, you know, I remember once I was running a, 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 a philosophical inquiry lesson and this 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 kid, um, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before as well. This kid sort of like we had been speaking a lot earlier in the lesson and then he sort of stopped in his tracks and he sort of paused and he realized that he contradicted what he'd said earlier. And then he said, I, I, I both agree and disagree with myself. And I just thought that's just amazing. I was like, my work here is done. If you feel that you both agree and disagree with yourself, that's like a, a level of self-awareness, recognizing that, that, you know, that you are not one thing. And that you know, like the learning how to sit with with contradictions sometimes, and to sit in that confused space, and to not know what you're doing, is actually really fertile ground for human. That I mean, that is what human development looks like. Like if you think that everything's hunky dory and you don't have any questions that you're trying to chew over, then you're probably not growing and developing. But like in our culture, like more widely, you know, like like for for you know in a politician level, for example, like if you if if you ask a politician a question, how often do they say, "I don't know," I, I actually don't know about that. I'm still thinking that one through. Like the, you never hear that because it's sort of it's seen as weakness. And likewise, you know, if Ofsted come round and they or Estin or whatever, and they're asking searching questions of, of you as as a as a leader. You know, maybe the honest question, maybe the honest answer to that question is I don't know. But we 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 somehow think of that as weakness, um, that that that's a sign of poor leadership or something, rather than just like a sign of somebody who's immersed in the complexity of something that's really complicated and the value laden. You know, and like you say, it's happening at level of policy, at the le level of academics, at the level of practice, and at the levels of different people throughout the organization really complicated what we're trying to do here <laughs> um it, it is and, and you, you've hit the nail on the head there and I, and I referred sort of loosely to the Kinevin framework and and with that it, you know that's a specific piece of work from Dave Snowden uh and you know it, it's been around for a long time now but it, you know it, it's about and like you said with that that learner that you work with it's about sense making and it's about decision making and, you know, the, the idea of that of that framework really is is being comfortable in those states of where you are. Uh, and, and the reason why it's called Kinevin and, and, and those listening in our system will be very familiar with that word in our curriculum, but perhaps not in this context as a framework is about is your perception, isn't it, of, of, of where you are and what lens you're looking through and what action and decisions you need to take in order to move through that. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that that sort of duality you had with with that sort of both agreeing and disagreeing I think that's a state that we should all be comfortable and become more comfortable with and I think unfortunately uh, our system and particularly here in Wales experience and, and history has shown us that we actually are and have referred to it earlier we have been born and brought through a very compliance-based system you know and we are taught as professionals 
uh, and we are educated through our sort of ongoing professional development within schools, uh, that there are metrics and there are tick boxes and there are actually rewards there. And, and there's rewards, aren't there, as individuals? You know, we get individually rewarded and we get organizationally rewarded. You know, there is no sort of sense of, you know, beyond that understanding that we have to, as a system, accept the fact that we are in this changing state and this tidal kind of ebb and flow, if you like. Uh, and, I, and I think it's important that colleagues get a chance to talk and think this through for themselves as well. And, you know, ultimately, you've got to be happy with where you're going. And something that Kat talked about is, is that strength of holding your nerve, that strength of vision, because that's actually some of the sort of ballast, isn't it, that holds you on course. Yeah, for sure. So kind of just for the benefit of listeners and also indeed for myself, this Kinefin framework, um, I just looked it up. So you, you mentioned these four C's earlier, complex, complicated, chaotic and clear. And there's a lovely, if people look it up on Wikipedia, there's a nice little diagram of it. And then it's like a sort of an axis and in the middle there's this blob of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just wondering, so like, like, can you explain a bit about how this works, like as a as a framework? Is it is it something that you're supposed to work through these four stages, or is it something that's much more like dynamic and and you know back and forth? What's the like? What's the idea of it? I I think you know it can both if you look at it as a, as a linear process from that clear uh, or towards that clear. I think it works like that, but I actually. Uh, I think that's quite a naive process to look at it. And I think you can exist both in one state and multiple states at the same time. And I think that's, you know, the fundamental uh, linear or even you raising that, do you proceed through it in that way, is probably part of the naivety of our system as well. And that kind of quick fix of looking to, is there a state that I can find myself in? And is there a, an, an immediate solution? So I, I think I'd like to take uh, the line that that student did with you and say yes and no. Uh, and I think you can actually use it as, as a linear process to work towards that clarity from chaos. But equally so, I think you need to be grounded in the fact that you could be in multiple parts of that theory at, you know, at, at the same time. And yet you could quite rightly be in a situation in school and particularly school because there are so many layered you know, strata in school and elements that we take part in. And we lead whether that's socially, whether that's community based, whether that's developing pedagogy or developing culture or even staff and, and family relationships. You know, and I could quite openly say as an organization, uh, as an overview, that actually we're actually quite in a, in a complex stage at the moment. But and picking that each of those elements could quite rightly be in an individual state within themselves as well. And what it does do for me, it provides and what you know that, that theory and that framework does, it provides a sense of questioning and a sense of action and a sense of reflective kind of foci that you should be thinking about in order to kind of maneuver yourself both out of it but also not kind of uh fearing it if that's the better phrase to use there as well so mm -hmm. uh and I think coming into a new school for myself and, and perhaps you know cat taking on and, and building that organization from scratch as well I think you could quite rightly be fixed in one of those stages but equally so across all of them yeah yeah thank you thank you i'm going to look further into this because i can see what you mean and, and you know that it, some people might think oh clear that sounds like the nicest the nicest place to be and when everybody's clear but some of the other words in this quadrant on this diagram here are like tightly constrained no degrees of freedom and this idea of best practice that there's like that there is a best way of educating human beings and that if you're not doing that then you're somehow like a naughty teacher or something <laughs> And, it, and it's this idea that, that there's these linear relationships that you've got like cause and effect. And that if you do this input, then you'll get this output. 
and recognizing it seems like that like in, in the complex quadrant, the, the language up there is things like enabling constraints, things that being emergent rather than best practice. And it's things that are that are just like reflecting the the, the dynamic, ever-changing nature of of what it is that we're dealing with here, social reality, you know, in 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 and, and that social reality, isn't it? You know, if you looked at the framework at first glance, you really do want to consider yourself as a leader or, or as, you know, as a community in, in moving, you know, sort of clockwise from that chaotic kind of complacency and that confusion there through the system. But as you can see, and you quite rightly pointed out, that blob in the middle, it touches all of them, you know, and it actually doesn't just touch all of them. It actually, if you look at it, it looks like it acts as, a, as for me as well as a conduit between all of them as well. So whilst, yes, we talk about that that movement around that clockwise action and ending in the clear, uh, for me, I, I quite easily could find myself in more than one of those quadrants at any one time and mm. via that confusion state. Yeah. So so to, to summarise, like the, in terms of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you, would you say that you want to embrace the complexity of what's happening here and to not sort of hurry too quickly towards... A state of like feeling like okay we like we need to be clear about what the what the, the curriculum for Wales looks like in theory and in practice and at all of those levels are you sort of saying like let's just embrace the complexity I, I am and, and you know you're not putting words in my mouth there it, it is about understanding appreciating and more importantly James it's about valuing the complexity we've been given you know, and I talked very much mm. uh, when I worked at the policy level about, about this heavy lifting. And this is what I mean. And I think for me, this framework defines that heavy lifting. And it's a responsibility that we have to have as professionals, as educators. And, you know, the, the irony sometimes for me is that in the classroom, we ask children to move through that framework and live in each of those quadrants uh, all of the time on a daily, hourly, minute by minute basis. And yet, isn't it something that, you know, colleagues and professionals either shy away from or actually, you know, want that quick fix for? And, and that, that excites me and frightens me at the same time. So, you know, we're, we're back to that duality again, you know, uh, and, and frightens me because surely as educators, more importantly, we should be thinkers and we should be doers. Yes. Uh, but but, you know, excites me because is an opportunity here, isn't it, to support and work with and collaborate with colleagues to help them as well. So that's, you know, for me, that's fantastic. Uh, <clears throat> And yes, you're, you're, you're right. I think we need time. And I think, you know, Kat and I talk quite a lot about slowliness uh, when, when we work with, with groups and we support colleagues and, and we make presentations. And it's about reveling, isn't it? It's about immersing. It's about appreciating. Uh, and it's about understanding that, you know, any solution that we think that we got shouldn't be a solution because it's when that solution is that that sort of painting the fourth bridge, if you like, again, it's when you should actually be going back and actually starting getting that red oxide back on it all again and unpicking it and so many colleagues that Kat will tell you and, and I come across you know want to pin it to the wall and say you know that's our curriculum that's our thinking that's what we're about as this school but yeah that's great and that might work for 12 18 24 months and it might work very well but what happens when society around you changes slightly what happens when the metrics of our own system and education change slightly and more importantly what happens when that child in front of you and their needs change slightly how can you pull that off the wall day after day and deliver it in the same way to very different people with very different needs and dare i say a very different horizon i think exactly that tie and we talk a lot about that notion of process 
versus product as well and I think that ties in beautifully here that when you're you know a lot of the work that we do with school leaders around curriculum for Wales has been that they want a shiny product they want to see this is what it looks like in my school this is the end goal and you can't you know you have to embrace that chaos and complexity of don't know what it's going to look like and actually it will look different every single year because we have different children we have different groups of children we have world events happening that we have to react to and I think um, you know if anything over the last few years what has taught us on a, a society level is that things do change and things are very different and you know we need to be ensuring our children and our workforce are able to do that as well and react to that change. And there's a good read, Kat, actually, that we are picking up and we are all reading in my cluster. Uh, there's a great book by David Perkins called Futurewise. You know, and it starts off, doesn't it, about, you know, everybody's got an opinion on education. You know, everybody wants or, you know, there's a drive, particularly his kind of pushback is thinks there should be this, you know, core canon and that we all should be doing the same thing, whether it's internationally, you know, globally or or whatever. But but actually what that doesn't address is that change in need and it doesn't instill confidence in practitioners because what you're doing for me and we've talked about this, it's removing that agency. And it's actually eroding and undermining that agency, you know, and it's it's about who agrees and who can actually say and agree whether that's nationally or globally, what's worth teaching, who, do, who gets to make that call, who decides that and why, you know, and going back to that why that we've talked about through this, you know, what, what for what purpose? And I think we don't spend enough time on the purpose. And I, I think, you know, we, we mentioned on social media in the last few days as well, haven't we, that, you know, what's the purpose of education? What's the purpose of schooling? What's the purpose of curriculum? I don't think we attribute uh, enough time in, in the beginning to that. And I really think talking about process here, Kat, we don't attribute enough time to going back and unpicking that. And I would add that third P to that, Kat, that I always, always have to remind you about is it is process before product, but it's people before process. Absolutely. <laughs> love it well thank you both massively i am so excited about what is happening in wales at the moment it is just phenomenal um and, and thank you for filling me in on my ignorance of that like and 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 you know this is this is something that should be known about more widely and i know that other countries have been on similar journeys they've been trying to do something sort of similar in scotland and in northern ireland as i understand it uh, and in the republic of ireland um, and elsewhere around the world, and so, so you know, this is not this is not a completely solo effort. Like you say, you've been you've been engaging with um, with you know schools internationally to try to to uh, you know make the best job of this. And just super excited to um, to see how this is going to play out. To be able to play a small role in it to help to 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 make this uh, really fly. Um, Let's watch this space. So, 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 as a final word, then, do you have any anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Anything that you would like to point them in the direction with? A recommendation of something that they might want to read or check out? I would say um, for school leaders, it's about being agile. And, and I think, James, you've mentioned that word previously. Um, we have to be prepared to change. We have to be prepared to lead in a new era. And I think that is something we have to do. And we have to collectively hold our nerve with that as well. And, you know, and, and as Ty has said, we need to collaborate. We need to talk to each other. We need to spend time having these big questions and, and having open debates. There's no right or wrong answers. And I think we have to really move into that um, sphere of building those collaborative networks 
networks as school leaders so we can have these open conversations and, and going back as Ty just said then about people it's about building those relationships and um, if anybody wants to to look at anything um, I would say um, have a look at the school as a learning organ organization model and hold that up as a mirror against your school and, and really see whether you are a school focused on learning yeah thank you and I'll post it so so Louise Stoll, you mentioned earlier, she wrote a thing with the OACD, wasn't it? About yeah. was, is that like the seminal text on um, on learning organisations? Yeah, it is. And there's a, there's also a really really useful booklet that actually goes through. It's, it's widely available, um, you know, via Google and things like that. Um, that actually goes through each element of the the SLO model and articulates what it actually looks like with little cameos of where that's happening in practice across the world and and particularly across sort of like the OECD countries that they work with. And and I found that very very handy at the beginning of the journey of working through that model. So I would recommend having a little Google for that as well. Mm, thank you. Okay, Ty, what, what would be your uh, parting recommendation? Uh, I, I think, you know, it, it's a, it's kind of trying to be sage, I suppose, but failing miserably in, I think we all need as professionals to be open. I think we need to have a degree of honesty of where we are and what we understand with each other for without fear of punitive judgment or scorn. Uh, I, I think I'd like to think of us and push us more towards less of a kind of false dichotomy sort of driver and, and more kindness towards each other and understanding uh, and making sure that we are very future focused. I think that's that for me is is all about the, the core principle, really, that for me will underpin getting towards a profession that has. And we've talked about it and, you know, my ambition, uh, a genuine understanding and a genuine action around agency. Uh, and I think on that note, I would probably recommend uh, a book by Mark Priestley. Uh, called Teacher Agency. Uh, and you can't miss it when it's on any bookshelf. It's got an absolute kaleidoscopic uh, cover on it. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's got contributions and, and work and research in there as well by Hurt Biesta, who for me is, is another sort of forward thinker and, and leading light on that. Uh, and then the final author, Sarah Robinson as well. Uh, and, I, and I think there's a lot in that. And there's a lot of work for me and reading and interest and excitement that spins off that. So, so that's that's where I would go. And I think if you want to create a culture in your school that is what I've said, open, honest, kind and forward looking, uh, you, you really need to, to unpick what agency is on all its multiple levels. And I even got, we you know, Kat and I got recommended last night, further reading and research to get into around that as well. So so hopefully that will be, uh, if you like, uh, the room which people go into that has a myriad of doors for them to then go and explore for themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I've been having these conversations with this group of people, this Education Policy Alliance, uh, and we were talking last night, we were talking about the need to diversify the system, um, to diversify like different types of, of school organisations and then diversifying what's happening within, within schools as well. And then we sort of thought, somebody pointed out towards the end of the conversation, they're like, we're not really talking about diversification here, we're talking about unleashing agency and freedom and so we were talking about subsidiarity a lot as well the need for this to be to, to devolve decision making down to the level and to trust teachers and leaders to make good decisions um yeah. rather than sort of micromanaging them from the top yeah and and you know agency in itself brings me all the way back to that the Kenevin framework 
because it's it agency is chaotic you know it's complex and and it's actually about mapping that kind of understanding of where you are and what actually you need to take next which again then links back to the schools as learning organization model and some of the really nice thinking around you know particularly even that learning compass work cat that the oecd have done as well you know uh, and, and i think there's 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 a wealth of really good stuff just if even if you just lived for the rest of your life around that kind of that signpost in that documentation and that thinking so I think there's a PhD in itself there, James. <laughs> or, or another podcast, you, James. Or another podcast. Or both. Quite a few people have said that the podcast is like doing a master's or something. That they'd be like, maybe we can start accrediting this. Uh, <laughs> well, Good thank, luck with that. <laughs> yeah, thank you both hugely for taking the time to speak with me. It's been uh, an absolute delight. I'm really looking forward to seeing what people make of this. Uh, and seeing how, how this whole thing plays out. Yeah. Thank you very much. Diolchen Varian and Hoyle Vau. Yeah, Diolchen Vau, James. It's been an absolute pleasure to share our journey.